Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, we are incredibly lucky to have Jesse of BioVortex to come on the show today, chatting all things Black Dog, his breeding plans, regenerative farming and so much more. As always, we're incredibly grateful for our fantastic sponsors, Seeds here now, number one in the game, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination, check them out, all the latest drops, the hottest breeders, if you want it, they've probably got it, I recommend them. Big, big shout out to our friends at Coppet Biological, they got everything you need to keep your garden pumping, happy and healthy, be it beneficial predators, beneficial feeds to keep those guys alive, or microbial solutions. Check them out to keep your garden happy and healthy, producing top quality. Likewise, a huge shout out to our friends at the Patreon gang. They're truly the lifeblood of the show and we're incredibly grateful for their support. If you want access to early content, additional episodes, or heck, even a few little bonus goodies, go check it out. Patreon forward slash the podcast. I hope you're ready for a good one. Let's strap in and let's get into it. Alrighty, so a big, big, big thank you and welcome to the regenerative farming warrior and exceptionally talented breeder, Jesse of BioVortex. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be here. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed your show so much over the years. Oh man, you're too kind. And I appreciate the kind words you gave me at Emerald Cup last year. I was in the audience. I didn't expect that. So that was really nice of you. Oh, it, it felt really good to have you in the audience too. It was like, cool. You know, just I, I've listened to the way... I've got a lot from hearing breeders get to go into their thought process and just the way that you create this format. Um, I feel that you get a real stream of consciousness that I've, I've gained so much from. And you've had a lot of my friends on here too, that I've worked with over the years. And, you know, like we've talked a lot and I, and I get to even gain a lot from listening to them on your show, even after years of experience. So I really appreciate that format and to have you in the audience at the Emerald Cup when we did the regenerative cannabis uh, breeding uh, panel. Uh, and also we did another uh, California Just Humble Breeders panel uh, that had just an amazing group. And uh, yeah, I was happy to have you in the audience to get to hear it. And oh. uh, Yeah, thank you. No, you're too kind, my friend. So the first question we like to ask our guests, what have you been smoking on recently? Well, today it's mostly been um, Black Dog with um, a mixture of uh, Banana Dog um, Rosin from Garden of Grease and not Rosin, actually, it's straight ice water hash. It just was pressed out a little bit. And then um, also some uh, 24K from um, Resin Ranch. Uh, it was just exceptional flavored, great, great citrus. Um, and, um, yeah, some cherry lime dog flowers too, which is just kind of one of my favorites, that combination between, um, Mean Jeans, cherry lime pop and the black dog, uh, and been playing with that for the last several years. And, uh, some of my favorite aromas and flavors have come out of that. So that's a pretty constant one, but that's what I've been smoking on today. Wow, what a lovely little selection there. <clears throat> what a lovely selection there. There's a few things I'd love to chat about. I mean, we're definitely going to chat Cherry Lime Dog because that's of huge interest to me. But just to quickly backtrack, you said the 24K. That's an interesting one because the citrus terps have been dominant for a while and now they're kind of like 
almost making a comeback, but in like a, a, a sort of a changed form, like with other stuff brought into it. What's your thoughts on citrus? Do you think we've reached the peak? Do you think we've passed it? Where do you predict it? I think there's a lot of, lot of different types of citrus. Um, there's certain citrus that, you know, works more or less with other people. You have those hazy citrus, you have the piney citrus, you have sometimes it's more on the lime, some more lemon. So you get straight mandarin, you have, you know, full lemon, like a lemon tree or something or mandarin, like mandarin or nectarine, or you have, uh, there's a lot of different ways citrus expresses itself. And what I like about the 24K is it's, um, I feel like it's the like, it's kind of the juice and gas. It's like the, the sweet orange citrus with a bit of that, that gas and earth that I, I really enjoy that a little bit more than maybe some of the super spiky, hazy citrus, which I also enjoy too, but I, I, I for all the time, um, I kind of like that, that little bit more gas with that citrus. And I think like the Mandarin and that 24K seem to deliver that really well. And they, they yield pretty well in ice water hash too. Yeah. Lovely. What a, what a bang on description. And I mean, while we're talking about it, what's your thoughts on like the kosher and the Jew gold? You know, they're kind of the two gassy OG things, which I don't feel get as much of a mention as some of the other OG cuts. How do you find them? Do you like them? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's difficult too to know, like if we're talking about the same thing all the time too, whether it's a certain cut that was the basis for something or whether it's the feminized seeds that were put out in Europe and, and what, what is your definition of that variety? But, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I enjoy those, those gas flavors. There's a, uh, if it's coming from a long line of very similar OG cuts and it's just different versions of the, of, of a similar thing. Um, that I've enjoyed since I was, um, you know, since the late, well, I guess, yeah, late nineties, early two thousands or so. So, um, yeah, I've always enjoyed those flavors and, and stuck with them. Lovely. Well, we'll have to get into that, but just as one last quick question on this subject, what's your favorite OG if you had to pick one? Um, I mean, it was good from the beginning. Uh, just the standard kind of the first OG cut that guy, that we saw like really in circulation in around probably 2002. I mean, and it's it very similar to the SFV, very similar to Tahoe and Trinidad, uh, um, Lost Coast OG. Yeah, they all had that that same kind of thing. And, and sometimes it's like, is it just being grown in a different spot or not? It's it's hard for me to to fully know. And we don't have, I don't have all of them saved her the records to know like what's what but um i, I don't have a a favorite because they were all so similar um it's really if how it was grown at the time too like is it this a real living soil uh expression um is it just perfectly done organic indoor is it a really nice light up um but yeah and then just having that addictive banging kind of gas flavor at at the end it's it's interesting what og did with our area it, it actually it created an appellation of its own and then like a, a very 
free market kind of way, the fact that there was this variety that had this addictive flavor that um, we were growing out in the hills in, in, in light depth and getting um, incredibly beautiful flowers that were better looking than indoor and better, you know, especially anyone who messed up their indoor, which was most people. So like um, people could come from all (laughs) over and just make a ton of money on selling this stuff at top shelf indoor flowers because it blew away their indoor flowers. And it it created an, really an appellation because it was a flavor and a standard of this area that happened with light depth and OG. Uh, And it really made a, a lot of, a lot of history and a lot of economic um, strangeness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. And it makes me wonder, let's say you had to make a, you know, a bit of a pie in the sky guess, but let's say like, you know, 25 years from now, most countries around the world are legalized. Do you think America would look into really pushing that Appalachia sort of thing a bit harder with specific strains in the way we see like wines and stuff? Or do you think people are still going to just pick different genetics each year and do their thing? Um, well, it's definitely happening. Uh, and there's really smart, amazing, um, excellent farms and breeders and advocates that are working towards that. And, and luckily, these are uh, a lot of the people who, who very much support the regenerative cannabis farming movement and these ideals and um, they're putting and also real science. And so, um, you know, there is an Appalachian project in Humboldt that's um, going into place right now. Um, Dr. Holly Hall is helping um, head a lot of the research and uh, the fundraising for um, the getting uh, nine different weather stations that will be put in different legacy farms with good practices. And we can start get recording all of the environmental data from high quality uh, weather stations that will be properly monitored. Um, and then Janine Coleman has been leading this amazing Appalachian project from Mendo and in Humble and has been doing just this incredibly difficult work because it's such a complex issue. And like we're dealing with, you know, cannabis is so, complex to begin with and then appellations and then we're dealing with everyone's different perspectives and everyone's different cultures and everyone's different spot and what's special about their place and what's special about their genetic and what's special about their terroir and also like who do you include and what doesn't get included and like is a plant grown in a pot in a greenhouse or an indoor in that location qualifies as an appellation when we're talking about environmental expression so you know things like do the roots need to be in the ground? Is it okay if there was other added potting soil or amendments? Is it okay if there's some environmental controls? And so, you, you know, there's a lot of things to kind of hash out. I, I'm on the the side of like, as long as those roots are tapped into that soil and that it is part of that environment and it's not environmental control and you don't have artificial lights, then then that's qualifying for an appellation. The second you go indoor or an environmentally controlled um, uh, greenhouse or the second that you have a pot that does not allow the roots to go into the ground, then I think that those suspend the idea of an appellation because you're taking out the environmental aspect of it, which is such an important part of it. Of course, the culture part of it, the breeding, the art, you know, like all of that is a huge part of an appellation too. It's like, how do you grow a cultivar? Like which, what are you breeding for? And then what are you doing with that? That's, that's, that all is part of it too. But I do think that the environment has to be a part of that as well. Um, so I'm really excited about all the amazing people that are, are working on this and amazing farmers too, like Moon Maid Farms, Tina Gordon, um, just 
so many are are doing a lot of work and actually the women have been spearheading this pretty hard like um just a powerful group of incredibly intelligent uh powerful people that are 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 doing the 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 work that I'd want to see done. So, you know, there's so many ways to get these things wrong. And I'm really concerned about things that could restrict freedoms. You know, I don't want people growing only one kind of cultivar in a place because that goes to monoculture, that goes to all these different issues or restrict a farmer from breeding in their own environment. Like the whole point is to establish these things that are um, a part of the culture, a part of the farmers, a part of the breeders, a part of making something that makes sense for that area. And I think biodiversity goes with that. So it's like, you don't just be like, oh, this place is known for this variety, this cultivar, because that same farm should be able to grow a type one, a type two, type three, type four. They should be able to like, you know, CBD, THC, they should be able to have things that are harvested early, things that are harvested late, that are different sizes that make sense uh, in their environment. So and that's a very dynamic landscape. If you think of like a green source gardens, like um, you think of all of the the breeding that they're doing and then all the different growing that they're doing. And they, that's to me like very much what an Appalachian is, but they are working on so many different cultivars at the same time and having a full polyculture mixed in with there, like many of the other regenerative farms, like moon gazer farms. Um, they're just great examples of that. And it's kind of hard for bureaucracy to understand that kind of like freedom and polyculture. And, um, but I'm hopeful that maybe this is the place where we can do it. Yeah. Wow. What a really knowledgeable little burst of info there. I think people have to redo that. I'm interested to know, because I, I, I got two questions from two fans and one of them was related to they were kind of interested in trying to do what you're talking about in their own little setup and they were saying do you think it would be beneficial to get that whole process going to kind of do your own IMO and try to like um, culture your own indigenous microbes from your area as opposed to say using like maybe an EM1 or like like a good microbial source but it's external would you recommend that like that could be a, a viable way to get some microbial activity going that's related to your terroir, or do you think it's a bit more complex than that? So this is a, a, a cultivator that's um, asking about living soil cultivation. Um, yeah. Is this indoor, outdoor? What kind of situation are we talking about? I think that they recently moved to a new property and they're looking to grow outdoor and they were kind of wondering like the first time you grow something, is there terroir there immediately or does it have to develop over time and do I need to use IMOs and things like that? Well, the terroir is there, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, like any gardening and, and the whole idea of regenerative farming is the fact that you make something thrive more every year. So you do the things that build nutrition that build that that generate uh more life just by going through um you know the cycles of things and so by cover cropping um in the in the fall so after you've grown your crop you immediately start your cover crop um before the rains come and that grows over the winter and all the nitrogen fixing bacteria that work with the um the root nodules in something like fava beans or something like peas or bell beans or vetch, those are pulling nitrogen from the air and they are fixing it into the ground just through the process of photosynthesis and through the process of having a uh, mutualistic relationship with um, bacteria that they, they literally 
create these nodules to house the bacteria. Like they grow these big things and they, they put out resources to make sure that they are housing and taking care of these um, bacteria that can um, process the, the nitrogen from the air, which literally is, prob- is one of the most difficult things uh, to break apart is a triple bond. That's the hardest bond to break apart. And um, N2 in the air is, is two nitrogens together in a triple bond. The only thing that has enough energy to break that apart is, is a lightning bolt. And so like when lightning hits, like some of that nitrogen in the air becomes free and it can attach to water and oxygen and different things in the air and then rain down as actual usable nitrates uh, for the plant. So you actually get some nitrogen um, in your, your rains when there's thunderstorms. But the bacteria have the enzymes that can start working on those triple bonds and they can, they can take them apart. So the, how, the plant houses basically a laboratory that allows these enzymes to work. And uh, so just by planting these seeds, all of a sudden you're able to pull the most difficult thing, you know, that's the, the nutrient that, that everything needs to build proteins um, that's locked up in our air and should be too, by the way, the nitrogen cycle, it's really important to keep it the way it is. And we've really messed it up by artificially producing nitrogen through the Harbor Bosch process, where we're actually um, using pressures and a catalyst and uh, hydrocarbons to fuel it all to make, um, to make nitrogen. Um, and what we do is we, we, we've literally put more than twice the amount of nitrogen into the system that should be there. And so you see a lot of issues with rivers, with water quality, with die-offs, with blooms of algae, with uh, toxic blooms and with full-on die-off because all the oxygen's robbed of uh, from the water. So it's a really big deal that we think about nitrogen in a way that is regenerative, that um, is the way that the planet has always done it because it's always kept it in a balance and it's, it's, allocated those resources in an amazing way so much of it's locked up in the sky the bacteria can release the release the the right amount for plants to be able to use lightning you know releases the right amount Um, and then we've just completely changed that just like we have with so many other things and co2 in the air Um, and that's the other thing that you're doing when you're cover cropping is you're actually taking carbon from the air and you are storing it in these plant cells and in the roots and they're growing and they're taking more carbon from the air. That's what photosynthesis is. It's, it's taking carbon from the air and it's building plant matter with it. You get organic material from that, you know, and that's also like with cannabis, that's where we get all our phytochemicals, all our medicine. It's literally coming from pulling carbon from the air and growing from that through um, relationships with roots and with microorganisms and um, doing that in balance is is just what we need to do with everything in life. Um, and so just the simple process of putting out a cover crop seed at the right time, you, you pull in carbon, you build it into the soil that that carbon is stored in the soil. It feeds more microbiology. Uh, and while you're pulling that carbon, the microbiology in the root nodules are pulling in the nitrogen and making that a, a nutrient rich soil. And all you have to do is mulch that back in, in the, in the spring and plant. And you've just built soil and you've built fertility while doing a positive thing for the earth. And then those plants get to grow with all of the nutrition and the organic matter that you just grew out of thin air in a way. 
What a fantastic explanation of nitrogen fixation. I, I definitely think people need to listen to that one again. I, I really enjoyed that. So I guess there's maybe just a follow-on in relation to our listener's question. Let's say you did exactly what you said. You'd done some nice cover crop and you've plowed it in and you're looking to go again this season. Well, it doesn't have to be plow. Uh, plow makes a lot of sense, certainly in dry farming. Uh, plowing is, is, is the way that it is done for... well. In certain places, like river banks and stuff, you plow it in, uh, it gets eaten quickly, and then you actually disturb the soil in a way that um, works for the dry farming process. Uh, I prefer, in certain locations, mulching in. So you can figure out what you have on a property that would work to mulch something in, whether it's a bunch of cardboard or maybe wood chips, old depth covers for a moment. Although the plastic you want to be careful about because you only want to do a certain certain amount of time and make sure that the oxygen and, and that you aren't harming, but you are just returning organic matter to the earth. But, you know, worms will come up as soon as something's covered and start eating it. You get all the millipedes, you get all kinds of um, diversity of, of creatures that get all this food that they get to eat. And then you just, you know, you talk about like frass or like, um, you know, or compost teas, like what's happening on the top of this surface is just everything you could never even buy in the store it's every positive thing you could imagine um and it's just piles of it that just happen you know overnight constantly they just come up and they eat and they poop and they give everything that the plants want as this this layer of organic material goes back so um yeah i'm a big fan of of mulching sometimes the tilling makes sense for and there's certain farmers who really know what they're doing and they know how to maximize production and um you know really reduce resource use um, in other cases, maybe that's not the place, the thing to do for that, because you want to encourage a different type of um, soil life. And, um, you know, whether that's uh, using rotational grazing or whether it's fully mulching and, and uh, developing more perennials, there's lots of different strategies. Um, but yeah, I would encourage mulching as well as, as not just tilling. Yeah, of course, and uh, my my bad using the wrong wording there. We're definitely no, you didn't. No, 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 because both both are are very are 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 needed and viable and make sense in their applicable um, uh, scenarios. Yeah. So before we get too in depth, because we're definitely going to go further down the organics rabbit hole, take me back. What was your first experience with cannabis? Um, kind of as early as my memories are, just watering beautiful plants as a, as a baby. Uh, and then next would be Monday night football. There was a roommate who, who, uh, old, uh, peace activist. And he actually had a radio show too on KPFA and, um, it was about social justice. And, um, but every, every Monday night, all, everyone would go in to his room and watch Monday night football. And I remember really enjoying when, you know, people talk like this as they, <laughs> passed the joint and held it in. <laughs> it was like, man, everyone's super nice when they talk like that. And, <laughs> you know, it's just fun watching, you know, a, a football game with a bunch of happy adults that are, you know, very carefree and enjoying each other. Um, so, and the smell was wonderful, you know, just this wonderful lingering smell in the air and just positive memories, uh, positive memories. Um, and then, you know, as a teenager, just, starting to smoke with friends and um, also just being interested in, in the seeds too and watching the plants grow. Like I, I kind of, you know, both started around the same time, pretty early for me too. Um, I think 13, 14 is when you, yeah, it was about the right age for me to 
start perking my interest back into something that I'd, I'd seen. Although where I grew up, you know, there was no more growing. It was only early when I was a kid. And then they made a decision that just with legal um, uh, impl- you know, issues that they, they were not going to risk the property. I actually grew up, um, the property I grew up on was Joan Baez's old place. Uh, it's a place that is, uh, was named by her Struggle Mountain. And it's uh, connected to the... Um, nonviolent movements and, and uh, the, the movement against the Vietnam War and the multiple social justice movements, as well as being connected to this thing called the land, which was um, a area up there that uh, basically intentional communities were built uh, on land that was accessible at that time. And uh, so they, they built all kinds of cool houses. They had irrigation, there's spring systems, there's a, um, a, a long haul for, for meetings and for dances. And, um, and there was back to landers and there was front landers that were more political back to landers were more about living off the land and the, the gardens. And um, yeah, so yeah, there's a rich history there. Um, and uh they like cannabis and stuff, but decided that, you know, the, the properties and stuff of that area wasn't, it just wasn't worth uh, the legal risk at, during the time, you know, and I grew up during the Reagan era and the, the, the war on drugs, which always seemed like just a horrible crime against uh, human rights and humanity. And I can't wait to see that as, as something so far in the past and, and just as something is. I mean, it's just a disgusting, horrible thing that destroyed so many lives, and I, I can't wait till it's over. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So what were some of the earliest strains you can remember when you first were getting into cannabis, or was it at a time when it was still, like, the kind and it wasn't really named? Yeah, you know, it was a little bit in between. Um, it wasn't so much about the names um, as... <laughs> it was. It was interesting things, so, like we had the Monday. It was a certain variety. It was super good that like my friend would get every Monday, <laughs> you know, like uh, we had the crackhead <laughs> and it was just so strong and so stimulating that it was just like crack, you know, and it smelled so good. And that's actually one I super long for. I, I, I would love to find that profile again. Cause it was, it was actually very addictive too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, other things, uh, it, yeah, a lot of things just weren't. They were just really good. You know, you just call something like, well, it's a golden indica. You know, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> um, and that was the flavor profile and the way that it grew. Um, I remember coming up to Humboldt. Like, so I grew up with like Santa Cruz um, mountains and also the indoor. And um, it was a relatively, it was extremely wealthy area in Palo Alto <laughs> um, as far as kids. I, we didn't have any money or anything, but like all the the, the kids around me were tremendously wealthy in general um in that area it's the booming of silicon valley and uh so actually the weed was incredibly good because there's the economic <laughs> driver for it to be uh i remember like we didn't like we just didn't see uh swat you know mexican or brick or or even like b oh, butter wow. like for ever like honestly we just had like you know because you're buying eights and twomps and this stuff like at least the kids are and like um 
and it had to be really good. I mean, the quality standards were super high. So honestly, we started with like the best. And uh, I, remember, I remember like somebody like coming with like brickweed and just like everyone's like, oh, it was a novelty for a second and everyone had a headache. And by the next day, like, <laughs> I don't think you could sell it for any price, but you could sell a gram for 20 bucks the next day, you know? Um, but yeah, it just, yeah, interesting times. Um, and coming up here, well, I remember the first time coming up in Humboldt, still in high school and stuff, and we got some honeydew, uh, which at the time it was like, is that the name of the, the variety or the place that it came? And it was so good. It had that kind of pre-98 Bubba look and, and structure, but it was just extra gooing. It had kind of a honeydew smell, you know, that made you even think like, is it called honeydew because of that? But I know it came from, it had to come from honeydew. Um, uh-huh. and it was probably light depth too. That was, you know, looked better than, um, you know, a lot of the indoor people are used to as well. Um, so, you know, if you paid the right price, freaking, you got fucking fire back then. Um, so yeah, we grew up on insanely good herb and I love putting away like the really nice seeds. I always just wanted to grow all the time and, and was just really interested in seeds and really interested in, in, putting different things together. So I just always saved in categories and like any nug that it came from, I'd like save the nug and save the seed with it and write down information about it. And so when I had, you know, like started uh, doing my first programs, I had all this information just literally from the, the flowers, you know, it, it wasn't like, Oh, I bought it from here and I know that it's this or that. I just, just from my own observations and, and the nugs that it came from. Wow. And back at that time, was did people talk about seeds you found in bud as though it was like, oh, you know, you shouldn't grow those? Or was it more accepted that you could get some nice stuff out of seed you found in bud? I mean, if the flower is super nice, then it's a treasure. You know, like, I think you, you might as well look. What's what? Why not? Um, and also, there wasn't so much uh, information or misinformation going on where people didn't necessarily have... Uh, you know, set ideas of what is a good thing or a bad thing or not. Um, and God, I mean, if you pull a seed out of a flower that was just like the best flavor and best effect, like that's a freaking treasure. Put it away and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> 100%. And so as you accumulated your kind of little treasure trove of- I called nice- it the vault. It was the, the vault. vault. <laughs> I love it. The vault. I think everyone needs to get the vault going. Um and was this kind of what spurred you to get growing initially? And were those seeds some of the first ones you planted? How did that go? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, doing cool gorilla grows and with springs and, and you know, nice forest soil and, um, and growing some of those varieties and then doing, oh, God, probably, in, yeah, ni- oh, yeah, I was 98 doing um, indoors up in arcade actually moving up here at that time um in humble and uh running through the vault and what i did was i just named all kinds of different things um mostly i was pretty into greek mythology and so i'd name them different greek names and one of the ones that stood out was athena and um that's a cultivar that's still with me today wow as far as like through the breeding there's like yeah 25 years of different projects with her. 
Wow, that's that's really impressive. I mean, it makes me wonder. Um, what do you have any specific end direction, or it's just more of like a blank canvas, and you just see where it takes you? Oh, she's taken me a lot of places. Um, yeah, it's it's a canvas. It's it's honestly, it's not an end direction. It's it's um, the plant teaches me. Yeah, what a brilliant sentiment. So. The question I love to ask breeders, when you made your first cross, was it an accident or was it intentional and what happened? Um, well, the first cross that I'd call a cross um, that went to something else as far as making a clone selection and then other people growing that clone selection out was actually just the Bubba selection that uh, made up here with a friend back um about 2001 uh crossing that onto and that became actually the bubba that was pretty much grown up here and became the main bubba and, and mixing that with the athena that i was talking about um that selection and that was athena kush um and that actually was growing up quite a lot up here and was just an amazing hybrid between them um just insane giant trichomes amazing resin production um really great division between flowers just tons of beauty um and it couldn't get powdery mildew which a lot of people really like so it ended up getting grown quite a bit in that that clone variety form um and yeah so all throughout the early 2000s that was a pretty pretty popular variety um in the humble area hell yeah and so do you feel like that was kind of what really lit the passion to start breeding for you, seeing that success people were having, or was it, it was already there? It was just, you know, nice to see people enjoying it. I've always been interested in plants um, and putting things together. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that success of that was, you know, that was definitely a, a, a great spark um, to continue to see all the different, cool things you can put together and what can come out of that. And, and also being able to see how those come out on all these different farms. Um, Cause I, you know, way back then I, I was already doing this where I got to go see something you worked on grown in all these different places and seeing the different expressions. And um, it's just massively interesting to me and it's never stopped being, it's like what I do every year. It's just, I go to all the farms and see everyone growing all the seeds and, and try to take in as much information as much, um, yeah, art, photography, a much as much understanding of their practices, and and then hopefully knowing everything about the flowers and the products that get made from it afterwards, because it all is just amazing information for the next generation. Great answer, and you know what? It segues really brilliantly into something I think we both wanted to touch on a little bit, which is kind of you're talking about how there's all these different facets that you like to approach cannabis from, you know, not just growing it, but the photography, the information, the research, documentation. And I think that it raises the overall question kind of, what is BioVortex to you? Because I've seen you post online and I'm assuming that maybe not everyone has seen it, but it was a great post. So I'd love for you to be able to tell the listeners, you know, what is BioVortex? Is it just a name? Is it something a lot more than that? How would you pitch it? Yeah, it, it's a, it's been a, a thing of confusion a lot uh, because it's like, oh, is this a, you know, is, is it just a genetics company? Are you selling Vortex Brewers? Or are you a living soil consultant? Or, you know, I mean, I do all these things, I guess. Like, I make seeds and I make uh, 
you know, and I, I've made Vortex Brewers and I've made Living Soils and, and consulted on that and helped all that. But um, really at the base of it and also just the whole, um, you know, the Regenerative Farm Award and all of, all of that kind of education towards that, that at the base of BioVortex, it is a conceptual art piece. That's what it, it was from the beginning and continues to be. And the concept of it is to influence the cannabis industry towards a more ecological um, future, one that's uh, thoughtful about plant genetics, that is thoughtful about social justice, that is thoughtful about the soil, about the earth, about how we cultivate, about the end users, that putting all of this thought into how we do something. And um, what I thought was really powerful and about connecting these concepts with cannabis is how much attention is cannabis has right now and how much um, economic attention and medical attention um, that it has that if we can really show these types of farming practices about these kinds of um, community um, ethical practices in the way that we produce a, a healing product that we can really um, drive and change the way we look at marketing, the way that we look at medicine, the way that we look at agriculture and, and, you know, forge a better future through that understanding. And so I just, the, the Trojan horse of, of all the enthusiasm of cannabis, I want to put these, these concepts into it and, um, and what's amazing is cannabis is a, a consciousness um, uplifting um, plant that allows for these ideas to, to soar. And so many different people that have been inspired by some of these concepts have done so many amazing things or have already been doing the work before. But there's a, a mutualism and a synergy between all the people that are, are working towards these goals that I think is incredibly beautiful. And, and really, that's what I want to cultivate and encourage and um, so it's, it's a, it's a conceptual art piece that wants to build community and awareness of ecology and all of the amazing things that this plant can do for our, um, mental awakening for our society and for social justice. Yeah. What an incredibly detailed and, and really kind of altruistic kind of body of work you've got going on there. A question we commonly hear from our listeners is that, they struggle to conceptually see how the small farm can progress going forward as things get harder to operate. Do you think operating under these sort of ideals and um, guidance is a way in which smaller people can still make things possible to operate and maybe, you know, earn a living from? Well, I think like all things, it's just like things diversify. It, it, there's so many different things that uh, cannabis produces. So, um, no, I don't know if like small farms make sense for large biomass for phytochemical companies. I don't know if it makes sense for, you know, large biomass for um, fiber, but it, maybe it does. It depends on your end product, your, your marketing, and then like who you're working with. And uh, I know that there'd be amazing people doing that. But hopefully, you know, we can that the practices are good regardless of the scale and that as a, um, a community that uh, buys these products, that we are aware of these things and that we um, hold people responsible for how they are producing things um, and, and really think about the environmental impacts in, in certain large scale and, and monoculture and what we want to see from that. As far as the small farm um, staying 
viable. Uh, I think actually, as far as uh, the more, um, I hate the word recreational because I think it's all uh, medical, but like the craft and the, you know, and connoisseur market um, that, that it's only going to be small farms because uh, I think that it only goes one direction as far as understanding of quality. Um, you don't, you don't experience true quality and go backwards. You don't experience the quality of an amazing dry farm peach, you know, from an amazing farm, like, and the quality of that, that flavor, like it can't be reproduced. You can't just buy it and have it shipped somewhere. Um, you can't, you know, recreate a Michelin star restaurant that has a relationship with a small farmer near them. Um, so I think we already understand that quality. Um, but we have a lot of work to do as far as education for the consumers um, through in, just even in California, but throughout the world, California might have a very sophisticated market in general, but there's a lot of work to do there um, in, in understanding practices. And, and so that's part of like the regenerative cannabis farm award is like not just about products, not just about flowers, which is of course King. And, you know, it's like, we need to know what everyone loved smoking on the most, but let's talk about the practices and, you know, some of these farms do quite well in the contest as well with the insane products that they're, they're coming to the table with. Um, and so we get to actually look at the practices of these farms. Like how are they growing? How are they, um, how are they using water? How are they interacting with their community? What medicines are they making? And this is how we actually, we created a matrix to judge these different farms and we go out on, um, a site visit and we will get the whole tour, go through everything, ask the questions. And then later we, we run it through this, this matrix of all these different um, aspects of, of what regenerative can mean. Um, and a lot of it is ecological, but there's also like the community and, and medical and social justice aspects of that as well. Um, and, and, Dan Marr of High Tide Permaculture has done an amazing job um, developing that with me with a, an amazing permaculture and um, e you know, science mind, uh, ecology like that is put into it is, is um, it's very thoughtful. And we, we get to kind of understand something about these farms. So having these awards so people can see uh, a little bit more about these farms and making movies about them. And so people can see the practices and and know that they want a flower grown like that they want a flower that's grown with love that helps the environment they want a flower that um yeah comes from a farm that that is a part of cannabis community that is a part of uh you know their watershed and their environment their forests um that are true stewards as well as growing just insanely fire herb a hundred percent. And do you think that we can get to a point one day where the average consumer could take all of these factors into mind and truly appreciate the quality of a product that comes from one of these farms and view that as the best? Or do you think that it's hard for consumers to understand all of the inner workings and why this regenerative farmed product is so superior? It's hard. Um, but it gets easier every year and it takes um, a lot of cooperation. Um, and it's, I think it's 
I'd like to see more on the dispensary ends. There's some that are like, really cool, um, you know, soulful from a very early um, point in Sebastopol, California had, had been excited about these regenerative farms and wanting to convey all the information they could about them and have done an outstanding job with that. Um, and then now we're really lucky to have um, our dear friend, uh, Crystal, who has opened up the um, humble urban market in Arcata and uh, I think like like no other dispensary, it's going to really be able to tell that farm story because she is such a deep part of cannabis community, important part of you know uh, so much of the policy developing Appalachians and um, but the and just working with all the farms and just being just just a positive pillar in the community. So I'm just so happy to have someone like that um, being able to help educate the public to the um, the amazing farming practices that are happening in some of these farms, the quality differences and, and just um, giving them access to really quality medicine. medicine. Yeah, certainly. So let's go back. Give me the rundown. How did the creation of Black Dog go down? I think a lot of people are interested in what the Genesis story was. How would you describe it? Um, well, it starts with um, my dear friend Ryan with Humboldt Seed Organization and projects that we were doing together uh, from an early point, you know, back in the even a, a little ways into like the Athena Kush days, like I got to meet him through um, uh, my neighbor and we, you know, instantly were, were close friends and, um, you know, he was very ahead of the game, understanding where, you know, what was happening with seeds and, you know, saw the work that I was doing and saw um, the potential and, um, and all of the things that were happening here and, and did an amazing job bringing that to um, really the whole world. Um, and so with projects that, yeah, we were working on together, uh, a, uh, just a regular Blackberry, um, you know, mother with a, um, a, the emerald headband it was which is a uh a california sour diesel with a lemon og and that um yeah it was kind of the genesis of the black dog and working with that in 2012 i made a selection that was like just exactly what i wanted and i was i actually originally called it like trimmer's delight because it was it literally took less than two hours to trim a pound. So like, <laughs> you know, it was just like, okay, that's way too much money. <laughs> like, but it was, a, it was, it was a dessert, you know, it's like, okay, cool. You know, but you know, when you finished a hard job, like, okay, here's dessert. <laughs> like <laughs> you get to make a bunch real fast. <laughs> but, uh, and then of course, I, you know, I like to just trim it myself too, but <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, that clone got saved and then I just continued working with that. And that kind of became the canon for, what I was doing with it. And then um, really, I mean, black dog still being made, you know, like uh, that was 2012 and every year I've done multiple different um, variations of back crosses or, um, you know, continuing sibling generations um, as well as probably at this point, maybe crossed it onto 250, maybe different things or more. Um, and then multiple generations from multiple different crosses from that. So I can, it's kind of this fun flagship project where it's just like, I'm going to do everything you could possibly do with this plant. Like, you know, just unbelievable, like 
uh, stored potential in one plant. So like, yeah, just from shit all over the world, you know, all the different things, like I've probably put it on black dog at, at some point. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. There's something about having this, this one plant with the stored information of, of such a vast worldwide genetic potential. Yeah, certainly. As and well as having this super inbred line, <laughs> as, yeah. you know, getting that consistency. And, um, you know, it's uh, what I really love is just like hearing all the positive stuff from people's experience with it. Um, it's been a lot of people where it's helped them um, with medical issues, with addiction issues, with mental health issues, like um, that it puts them in a place that, that, that helps them. There's something about the, the chemotype that, the terpene and the, the cannabinoid combination. It's, you know, nothing like specifically unique and it's not super potent or anything, but it's just, there's something the way it like connects you with nature balances you, like it. And, and people seem to have a very similar experience. Um, and it's just so fucking pretty to watch grow. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, she's a special one. Lovely. So I, I assume you've heard a plethora of feedback from people about it, but are there any kind of traits or properties? Well, it's you pretty find? neat to see the hashtag black dog Kush and it made sure to put the Kush on the end. So it's not buried in a pile of Labradors and stuff, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which would happen. Yeah. It's like, if everyone just tags black dog, it's like, no one's going to see that hashtag. I'll promise you. <laughs> but if you do black dog Kush, it's like, it's pretty good, but there's thousands from all over the world. And it's, it's really amazing to see. And, you know, super thankful uh, with the relationship with, um, yeah, my friend Ryan and Eric and the Humboldt Seed Organization with getting that everywhere. Um, it's really, really cool to see. And are there any, uh, characteristics or problems you feel it's particularly good for? Like, for example, if someone was having uh, like low energy or like, is there anything which stands out you think it's quite good for if patients were having that issue? I think it's good for what it's good for, for the person, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't pigeonhole it. Um, but the one thing that has been um, consistent though, is uh, a connection with nature and a balancing Um which helps with a lot of things, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. So do you prefer in general to kind of work lines till you've got a pretty good idea of what's going on or are you a bit more like let's do some F1s and kind of see what comes out of it? Well, I mean, every year I, I, I work a few lines. Um, I figure out what is possible and, you know, maybe that's, one, maybe it's four, maybe it's six, maybe it's two. And then on top of that, I just try to do every freaking thing I can. So like, yeah, I make, and, and uh, yeah, I make all kinds of polyhybrids. Uh, I, you know, I, and I try to, I try to set things up. I, I, I make probability waves is kind of how I think about it. And so I set multiple different timings up and I have my like super planned out, like my four projects, like I'm doing this year that are like, you know, I'm doing my, cherry lime dog bc uh one f3s and i'm making the f the cherry lime dog f4s um and i'm doing a very concentrated you know effort towards making those be exactly what i want them to be but at the same time i've 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 planned i have maybe a hundred different varieties that are staggered at different times that will be for different projects and um i will just try to 
see what makes sense at each <laughs> time. You know, it, it, there's a lot of thought going into how I set it up. But the thing is, the way the probability wave collapses, uh, I might not know until the days that they come, you know, as you, you smell a variety that you see their resistance, that you see um, their profiles and that you see, you know, what kind of male might work with them or what the timing will be. Um, and yeah, what you want to save, what you want to clone, what you pollen you'd want to save, what, which ones you want to put together um, and what kind of, preservation work that you might be doing just putting a couple things together that you already have or or are you going to do a whole lot of new things um so i want to do it all um so I, I just work really hard on a couple lines and then i, I make a whole lot of polyhybrids yeah brilliant answer and and i guess the question that comes to mind for me is like the Athena, do you think there's an endpoint, or is it a forever changing and morphing sort of piece of art? Exactly, yeah, forever changing, morphing piece of art. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't, I don't want to manipulate that relationship. I don't know. There's something about that plant that uh, she's just given me so much, and yeah, I'm just gonna just watch and learn from her and, and each year um, see see what happens and make sure to preserve things. I've lost some of the things that I might have thought that I wanted to continue, but I've also gained so many others. So, uh, yeah, I'm just open to, to where that goes. Um, but as long as I still see her in there. Sure. And out of the current crosses you're working on, I mean, you mentioned the cherry lime dog earlier on. What are some of the ones you're really excited to delve more into? Uh, yeah, that flavor right now too. It, well, the thing is, it's it, it doesn't even have to just like, so I'm looking at just cherry lime dog as multiple ways to dive into the same thing. Um, so, you know, I took the cherry lime dog, and, you know, I, I made my F2s from that. But then I was also like out of those F2s, I'm like, you know, I kind of want it to look a lot like the black dog structure too and bring some of that back. So I just, I, I put some of that back onto the, um, the 2012 black dog clone uh, to make the BC1. Uh, and then, and then I made the F2s with those and I'm making the F3s right now. So it's like, it's kind of going down a different line, although it's still, I did make my selection holding on to the flavor profile that I really liked that uh, a lot of the cherry lime pop, you know, shines through from that, from, from Jackson, from Mean Gene, Freeborn selections. Um, but it's like, it's a super great blend with the black dog, but it like, yeah, it just got that. It's got the right harmony of the blends of flavor and then but it's a little more black dog in, in structure so this is also a more um uniform dwarfy and i also made a, a a dark selection and um a slightly lighter selection so one that just turns purple super quick and like right now it's like really really dark just with the first little like nugs coming up for the um the breeding project I'm, I'm working on right now with them um, frosted out like crazy, just at, you know, they're not even a half a inch like wide yet, but just completely coated and dark, but they have the structure of the black dog. And so they're, they're consistent. They're squatty. Um, they won't need any caging. They need no effort. I don't water or feed or do anything. I just let them, 
do their thing. So I kind of like breeding for plants that you don't have to do anything to and that produce a tremendous amount for their biomass. Um, they don't, they're not necessarily the monster plants um, that you need to cage and that, you know, take up all this space. And, but um, the thing is they're producing more flowers per the rest of the, the plant. And they, um, and if you have them next to each other, it, you're probably going to have a more productive square footage. Uh, so I do like reading about thinking about those kinds of lines. Um, and then with the cherry lime dog F fours that I'm making right now, um, I'm kind of going with the more classic hybrid growth where they were, um, a, they're a taller one. Uh, the, the cherry lime pop was tall. Um, and it had a really nice mix with the black dog where it was still like a medium tall plant, but it was well structured from the black dog, but not the, the I had problems with the overstretching of the, the lime pop, um, in this area because the branches got too wet or wind and stuff. They, they had a tendency to break a little bit easier. And I really don't, I, I'm kind of an all natural style and I don't want to have to do cages and things. Yeah. Um, so that, the black dog structure really worked great to keep those, those stems and branches uh, really strong. And, uh, but the, you know, the, the F3 generation is, is a nice, tall, fast growing. It's not all squatty. And, you know, that's nice for people too. Um, and then it just has a just insane uh, flavor profile. And so I did a, a pretty big selection last year and that God, it was so, I mean, it wasn't giant or whatever, but it was so hard to choose because it was literally like, this is my favorite aroma I've ever smelled in my life. No, this one is. No, this one is. And like, <laughs> um, you know, and so the one I ended up like popping from like, God damn, the, the aroma from that is just like, yeah, it's from the gods for sure. And big, big respect to Jackson for his, his nose and his work. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, to, to mean gene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it makes me wonder then, are there any other sort of modern genetics or modern clones that you would be interested in incorporating into the black dog line, just kind of seeing where it goes? Dude, you could literally probably name every single one and it's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, go ahead. <laughs> it's happening. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got, one, yeah. So, I mean, like, well, uh, and, and like hash lines too, like the banana dog is, is, uh, been wonderful. And, um, I mentioned smoking on some of that hash earlier too, that, um, the garden of Greece did Kush Kirk and, um, Amanda, they, uh, they are just freaking hash artists and, and amazing regenerative farmers, dragonfly earth medicine, uh, pure farmers up in Oregon, just, just making, I, I honestly like their freezer. It's the best the the highest concentration of the best hash in the world like it was just like <laughs> i went up with with simply adam and we're just like yeah they just took our breath away uh some of the best gourmet experiences of my life uh with actually their puppy breath which was the mendo breath with uh an sfe uh black dog um and yeah so i mean there's two you know sfe og and mendo breath on on black dog but oh my god the, the quality of that hash is just unbelievable. It's so um, just great structure, great consistency too. You can just like snap it off and like, it just took a second to like just press it. And it just like, you, I mean, the idea of rosing that quality of, of full melt would be so insane because it's just so <laughs> beyond, you just touch it and it's already so beyond rosin. Um, and then, and then it holds a consistency too, where it's like Amber, I can like break it even at room temperature where like other stuff would just kind of get a little like, 
you know, start to be a little more volatile, a little greasy, um, you know, either cake or grease. And uh, th this just has this like jewel like quality to it. And the puppy breath had that too. And um, it makes it really easy to catch too. And they get really high yields and um, they were very resistant too, very mold resistant. Um, but I love breeding for high ice water hash yields. Um, I'm really interested in, in trichomorphology um, and also, uh, you know, bud structure and, um, and then also the terpene and cannabinoid uh, production that is associated with uh, trichomes that are easier to work with, with ice water hash that lead to higher yields. And then also thinking about like where the, um, you know, getting different unique flavors and how you could do that without with still getting a decent return on other varieties that might not be as uh, good for, for catching in a, in a mesh. Yeah, what a what a sort of conscious effort with breeding to take it in that direction. I and then with CBD too, I really want to do that with CBD. And I have I've been, the last couple of years, I have some pretty, you know, good uh, beginning successes towards that effort. And I'm I'm excited for like um, uh, the Holy Tonic selection, which was a Big Sur Holy Weed Canatonic cross. That there's a two to one selection that has the right kind of trichomes. And then um, some of the different crosses with that, like um, black, black sapphire on that, which is double black dog sapphire scout holy crack, um, and then just straight black dog on that too. It's like some of these are gonna they they're gonna come out with the right trichomes. I also did some banana OG harless sue, but really the the canatonic and the holy tonic um, crosses are. are look like they're going to work really the, the selections that I made years ago of, of these, they're, they're specific ones. Um, and a really orangey, really beautiful, um, high trichome content variety of the, the canatonic. That's a three to one, uh, that the Holy tonic was, was, was made from. They just more than most CBD varieties. They have the type of trichomes that could do it. And I've seen some good successes so far. So I'm really excited uh, for some of the research projects that are happening this year with that and seeing that with come to fruition with some of the extractors and farmers. Yeah, of course, of course. So, I mean, a question I've had for a little while now is, do you think that ultimately terroir is able to manifest itself more so in hash maybe than flour? Like, do you think it's more perceivably noticeable if you made a product kind of like what you described that that might stand itself out a little more than the flower or do you think not necessarily like they could both equally be very unique? Hmm. Um, yeah, they, they both could be very unique. I mean, certainly there's a concentration that happens um, with hash. And I think what, one thing I've, I've definitely heard over and over again from hash artists um, and extractors is they fully have been blown away when they first like run some living soil uh, base trichomes, like when they've just been running salt, you know, or indoor or, or maybe less uh, organically grown depths or stuff with dust and all the things. But uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I've seen it happen a bunch of times. It's like, Oh my God, like what is the quality of this is just incredible. And, the, and it's hard for them to go back. So um, most extractors that I've worked with who've, who've been turned on to that have, have been very, uh, <laughs> they only want to source that type of material. 
Yeah. So I think that shows something about the terroir for sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, just to kind of stimulate a bit of discussion, it wasn't too long ago I was chatting with Burnside Collective, who were the guys who won the hash category of the Ego Clash, and they did it in salts, and they made this interesting comment where they were kind of like, we think that producing hash and concentrates specifically, it's more about uh, like the watering techniques and like the humidities and stuff more so than organic versus inorganic because you're just kind of getting the glandular heads. Mm. Do you think do you think there's any truth to that or do you oh, think like Oh sure, sure. Um absolutely environmental conditions like never being stressed out having the right like temperature and and you know just the plant being happy all the time and it being the right genetic in the first place is is it might be stand out even more than uh other other things too. Um I mean I think I mean, it first just starts off with the genetic, like, is that genetic going to put off the flavor that's going to work out? Like if it doesn't, then it doesn't really matter <laughs> what you're doing. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, next yeah. though, I mean, I really think, yeah, just like not having an environment that has stress. Um, you know, I remember when uh, like simply Adam first, like was washing some of our living soil grown um Coastal stuff, you know, like I think there, there's something about the lack of stress in the environment because it never gets too hot or too dry or anything. And the trichomes could really just be what they wanted to be with never seeing any stress. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, someone putting a lot of um, effort towards environmental control and not using any sh shitty products, at least, or at least stuff that would be very... Um, you know, benign, I guess, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, people that are going to be using pesticides or any kind of sprays are going to destroy hash. I mean, obviously it's not going to taste good and it would be toxic and all that stuff. Um, but you know, some mineral salts that are thoughtful, um, in a good environment. Um, I don't think it would be what it could be, but I do think it would be better than a, uh, something else that, uh, was, was stressed out potentially. And certainly better than something that wasn't the right genetic in the first place. Yeah, certainly. And so, an issue I've been kind of tossing in my mind is, do you think there's any relationship between, like, the trichome density that you see on the plant and the quality of hash? Or do you think they're not tied in together? And the reason I bring this up is because I think a lot of people yeah. look at, like, it's Mac or whatever and they're like, uh -huh. oh, it must make the best hash. Yeah, next. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, and, like, this is something I, I like to bring up when, you know, like, just in that the idea of trichome density, it's like, well, how do you even measure that, you know? And I, I would like to establish, like, you know, better uh, better ways to to measure that because you can't just say there's this many trichomes. That's not telling you <laughs> what you need to know. It's what size are the heads, you know, like uh you know what just you have to describe the next like are they all snaking around and making that illusion of the whole thing and and you know it's like black dogs is one that's like both you know it's got the long necks and it's got the the heads so it's got that like it can have that super frosted out look um but you know there's other varieties that might even ha be packing more trichomes but they they're not um they're not poking them out with the necks you know um you know like they're they're just heads that kind of grow before the neck even, or, um, or then, yeah, they grow and then the neck will kind of come after and they'll hook a bit, but it's like the plants that put that effort towards the head. 
But it's not just that too. It's what is the makeup inside that trichome? What are the terpenes and cannabinoids? And a lot of CBD varieties, like why I was talking about it, they don't yield that well. They, they have like high myrcene um, contents quite often and different volatile trips that like, I just, they just grease out really easy. You touch them and they grease out. Like you, obviously you're going to lose so much if you're trying to, to separate trichome heads um, if they all just burst. Um, so there's a lot of things to think about um, in, in the morphology and the chemical makeup uh, beyond uh, trichome density. And do you think over time, as the quality of hash and concentrates in general improves, that we're going to see more and more people move away from flour, move towards concentrates? Or do you think it's just like whatever floats your boat? Flour is never going to go anywhere. And it's like the basis for everything. And um, even if I want to smoke hash all day, I want to see where, you know, the flour came from too and enjoy that too, or roll the joint with the two together. Um, And yeah, there's, and right now, like, actually it's kind of funny in the California, like, legal market in all the markets there's really like no end to the desire for really quality flour especially after the um outdoor season's been over for so long and depths are just hitting and um and indoor is so rare in general especially also in the legal uh market too that um people uh yeah they i mean if you got really good flowers they people go for the flowers like it's still you're gonna make more on that too as the farmer's in general, um, it still it still gets the best best price, um, but that's what's really nice about breeding for yield. Um, that let's say something you're growing a, a variety that yields well in ice water hash. Um, let's say yields average, you know, but it's good enough to work, you know, and you're you're growing that. But then you get genetics of another variety that yields three times as much as that decent yielding variety. You just grew three times as much in that same location with the same amount of resources and the same license and the same square footage. Um, so that's huge difference. And so I, I yeah, I try to, I want to breed towards things that help farmers do better. Yeah. I mean, a great point. And on the topic of breeding, something which really stood out to me about your breeding, which I'd love to chat about, is that I've noticed, and I, I'm probably wrong, but I, I, when it comes to mind, I've noticed that you do something really unique with your breeding that I've only ever seen res dog do, which is like explore these sort of back cross and then take it to the next filial generation and then like you know interweaving back crossing and filial breeding whereas most breeders tend to stick to one or the other what's your thoughts on that and do you think that other people might be missing out on a little something by just back crossing or just filial breeding yeah i mean i think it's all something to explore and like you know i want to do both um at the same time because i get to see what comes out of that and i'm and i'm just interested to um in how to get to certain places faster. And sometimes I think, uh, yeah, BC back cross generation makes more sense. Um, and yeah, I like that to also like, yeah, people are actually to have people think about that too. And like, Cause I remember like back cross, you'd like see it. It was like so often used as like sibling pairing and stuff too. And it's just <laughs> like, it didn't. Yeah. So just using the terminology, of course that gets really difficult too, because like, well, which back cross is it 
on, you know, so I, I mean, I actually do note, it'll be like, Oh, the 2012 black dog selection, you know, for the, that cherry lime dog BC one F two number three. Like, <laughs> so I know that, but like, um, but it, it could have been the, the BC, the same thing. What if I put it back on the cherry lime pop or something like it would still be the same notation and yeah, that, that kind of, I just have to write down all the things basically like being well labeled is, is important. And then, yeah, I, I just really love to see, you know, later on, I don't know what kind of research I can do too. you know, like um, are already able to do a decent amount and being able to see how genetically consistent something is and um, yeah, being able to learn from what's the fastest way to achieve something in a generation of seeds. Um, you, you know, an, an interesting example that I really love, um, and we've got these giant, beautiful, um, glazed cherry plants in the yard. And these are from green source gardens. And the first time we met Nick from green source gardens, I was with Ryan of Humboldt seed organization. And, um, we went over to their place in Jacksonville, uh, before they got their, their current farm. And, uh, you know, we tr- gave them a bunch of seeds, traded a bunch of seeds, hung out, had a great time, put my hands in some of the most beautiful soil I've ever seen. And um, they had this amazing little like medical backyard grow that like in the pictures looked like the most giant, amazing oasis you could imagine. And the most giant pinkleberry flowers and um, yeah, just a total magic place. But uh, with these seeds, the, the glazed cherries that, that um, Ryan Humboldt seeds, organization gave them uh from keith sweat's uh work on on the glazed cherries which is cherry og and it was a cookies uh, cross that worked a little bit um that nick ended up taking it to to five generations uh out there and um in their their farm in, in oregon and adapted to their spot and everything and so like that's a an f5 from you know these seeds when we met five years ago and then he'd also taken the the black dog bc4 multiple generations too so he had two very established inbred lines that he put together and made these f1s last year and he gave gave me some of these and they're just true f1s you know when we talk about a hybrid like um an f1 hybrid like normally it should be coming from two established lines and you know, he just freaking did the work, spent five years, you know, and it's just, it's just cool. Like a gift from when you first meet and then that turning into this amazing thing, but the consistency between these plants and the giant leaves and the, 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 the vigor and everything, it's just, it's what you'd expect in a F1 generation, a lot of other plants. It's, it's kind of how it's done. A lot of times you'll take something to a, you know, F9 before and, and before you start putting it together for an F1. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a really interesting point you bring up there because a lot of people talk about how if you took two really inbred lines and crossed them together, that would be like what you might think of as like a true F1 because it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. two really diverse things. Do you find that you like that sort of pairing over the more like F1 cross F1 making a new F1? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I I like everything. I super like these these F1s of the cher- the glazed cherries, they're just insanely nice. Uh, they they kind of, yeah, they're just the standard of what you'd want from an F1 generation. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of other things I'd probably classify as, as a polyhybrid uh, instead of an F1. 
Yeah, sure. Because because you know I don't know what the I don't have a pedigree on the other thing, and also when you're just like, which I do all the time too, crossing in a you know a a, a well established cut or whatever, you don't know if that was a bag seed, if somebody did any work on that, or if it was just a found thing or or not, um, or or how crazy the the um, the generation was before it. You don't actually know um, because a lot of these things we don't have any kind of. Uh, pedigree on it. It, it that's something i kind of look forward to i really like dogs and um i like the idea of like kind of the breed standard and different things being built by breeders and so we have this information that we can uh work with and and um and actually know all the you know i like when i look at a plant i love that i get to like think about their grandmother and their great grandfather and all of that stuff you know like it and because I, I label well <laughs> and I take pictures of everything, like I can really go back and just know all these things. It just brings me a lot of joy to have that family history. Yeah. And it sounds like a consistent theme I'm picking up that is important to you is like good documentation, good record keeping. Do you think that this is something which unfortunately might not be done well enough by others at the moment? Well, I mean, I can always do it better too, but you know, I'm, I, I, uh, no, actually, I mean, I go crazy if I do it wrong, like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like it all works, but yeah, you, it's tough too. And I go to the, these amazing farms and they've mixed everything up and it's just like, no, like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I try to be all positive and stuff because everything looks great, but I'm like dying inside. <laughs> and like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, everyone label. Well, please, please. It makes breeders happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that like this idea is something even both myself and obviously you as well are hoping to promote because there have been times when you know maybe i've messaged a breeder and i was like hey man just so you know um like you should put the female first and the male second in when you're listing the parent stuff and sometimes people get really defensive and it's like i'm not trying to have a go at you man i'm just it's just you know the convention you know like it's just it just helps if we all follow it right yeah i mean I like female first. It makes sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So, I mean, the next question I wanted to ask was, I'm sure it has happened, but just to to really get the verdict on it, have you ever done a certain cross, like maybe you're taking a certain thing to the F2 or the BX3 and you do it and you're like, oh man, I think I might need to go back and redo that a bit different. Like I didn't quite get what I was looking for. Does that does that happen or do you find you instead maybe just find something you weren't expecting, but it's equally cool and you're like, oh, okay, it looks like we're just going to go down this path. So much unexpected always happens in life. You know, it's like you and, you know, and the thing is also because you know the generations, you do know what to expect too. Um, But I do find that quite often the plants fulfill my, the expectations because I know their history, but often I find that the things I think about first are like, oh, that's the one. It so often it's a surprise at the end. So often it's it's like, yeah. So you really don't know anything till you go through the full process, as far as selection goes. Sure. 
And so a question our viewers always love to hear our guests answer is, are there any particular traits that you think are representative of a good male? Like uh, I remember just the common one is like Subcool always used to say, you want a male that, you know, is not super quick flowering, but also not the last one in the pack. So he always kind of pitched it as though, you know, towards the later end of things. Are there any traits you think represent a good male or do you think it's just variable and it depends what you're looking for out of the male? Yeah, all of them. All of them. Um, that's the thing. It's like, what are you going for? I like to work backwards. So like, you know, and I like to have a lot of males <laughs> and, um, and be able to really choose what's going to make sense for something. Um, but every, but what I'm looking for is going to be completely based off of kind of the end goal. So it's not a, a blanket, you know, question like, and, and how do you do that search? Are you making a, a high CBD, you know, you're just making sure that it's a CBD rich, you know, then you're going to do analytics for your mail search. Are you looking for resistance? Then uh, you might want to put them in a, in a place that's, you know, uh, going to be a place that would bring out uh, molds and disease and, and see the, the strongest ones. Um, you might be just, it's all about smell and just the stem rub is really going to be what it's about. Um, you know, you really might really care about, um, flower structure. So you might really look at like, what, how does that, that male flower look too? Um, there's a, a lot of things to look at, uh, general health, vigor. Um, so it, it, but normally you're putting all of these factors together a bit. Um, and then, paying attention to the things that you have already observed from the past. You know, if you, if you know a certain stem rub is associated with an end flower, like that's something you gain by just paying attention to plants for like 20 years. Um, yeah. And it, it, it cracked me up at the, it was one of the regen conferences and, and, and mean Jean was, was talking on one of the panels and, uh, and somebody had kind of had asked that question, you know, and he just started talking about all this stuff and he was describing, uh, how, you know, if you smell pickles on that early stem rub, you know, that ends up being like your gassy ones and just all this like nuanced details of stuff that he'd been <laughs> observing for like two decades. And like at the end of it, it was just like the dude was like looking for like, you know, a short answer, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what's a good male or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like the answer was like, well, you just pay attention for 20 years and then you start to get a, a, the beginning of an idea <laughs> or something. You know, like, I, <laughs> Uh, yeah it was kind of uh so yeah there's just a ton of things to to put all together and and what your selection is going to be for for what you're making um but you know i want them to be resistant i want them to be healthy i don't want people to struggle you know um i don't want them to have to use things to deal with uh mildews and molten so like if i can have that be part of the male selection that's super great um but I'm not going to do that at the detriment of like the quality and smell too. Like it's like still if like there's nothing coming off that stem rub. doesn't matter how resistant it is necessarily. Uh, well, hopefully there's a really good smelling one next to it. That's resistant too. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly. Oh, actually for the males too, you know, you brought up the like, Oh, you just want the ones that are the right timing. I really think that all the different timings are useful. You know, like I put some of them, just to play with it, see what happens. I put some of like the most early males that came out of a orange Valley dog, cherry lime dog cross, uh, onto some auto OGs. 
just and see what that does next year. You know, I'll observe that. And there's multiple ways I can go with that. I could make more autos with it, or I could just have an earlier flowering generation, make selections off that, um, you know, see a little mix of things. But like, what do you want to do? And and where, what's your environment? Like, maybe you only do want to be those using those super early flowering males. But like, if you have a really nice full season, maybe you super want that full stacking all August. You know, you don't want it to be, you know, wasting you know, and flowering early, uh, instead of continuing to grow and stack. Um, so it's really dependent on your, your end goal and where you are. Um, you know, if you're closer to the coast, shit, use those earlier males maybe. Um, but I think you should use them all too. The other thing is I, I like staggering of, uh, harvest times and being able to work with farmers to create kind of a genetic plan to do that. So like, if you want to be, harvesting from you know uh mid late september until november you like then you get to do each week you know we'll take down this and then we'll take down that and we'll take down this um when it's all hey it's october 20th and it's all ready (laughs) at the same time (laughs) drying space is is difficult uh and then quality goes down if you're trying to like pack everything in you're doing things quickly and all of that and you might not be able to save it all and um so i think you know really staggering um flowering times makes a lot of sense so uh, you know making that notation which i like to do like i note those those first flowering males um and those later ones and, and notate note that information so um i can have an idea of, of the next generation once i see that working then i can recommend that to a farmer for hey i know that that this variety is going to be done on the first week of October. This one will be the second. This one will be the third. Um, and that, that helps stagger that kind of harvest. And what I really like is for ice water hash varieties. Um, and some of the, the varieties, like um, the banana crosses, the holy nana crack, uh, banana dog, and the things are really uh, Voltron, um, which is uh, Athena, holy crack times um, sapphire scout black dog. Um, those are incredibly resistant and later uh, season, you know, it's like the end of October there and they look so mature and good. And um, uh, actually you could see the Voltron on the calendar. I think you might've got at the Emerald cup. Um, oh yeah. On uh, uh, the October shot is a candid Kush uh, photo and from high water farms and it was dry farmed and just like, just the maturity of the crystals and the size and this is a, a flower that really literally nothing was done. Like it was cover crop tilled, correctly planted, and then let the winds just rip through it. And it was let to dry and to like get like ravaged by the environment. And then it became hardy and strong and grew like flowers that would blow away any of the most cracked out indoor you, you'll see. Like it's so freaking just frosted out, dense and, and beautiful. And, um, but so like that holy nana crack though is a great example for the really high resistant and it does a thing with the the flower structure where it separates each different um uh nug just enough that uh you don't have uh air water being trapped um that each one is just segmented enough uh, that it that it has a good open air and it's already incredibly resistant to to botrytis and it also doesn't grow in a, in a shape that would trap that moisture. 
And then that also lends better to ice water hash because each one of these nugs has more surface area and they have the perfect trichomes for it too, just like, um, you know, large, large size heads um, and heads first and not a whole lot of necks, like all that energy is going to really nice heads. Um, and you can harvest those in November when it's like cold and not have any worry of any mold. And um, it's a really nice time to make fresh frozen after everything else is harvested. Yeah, what an awesome answer there. And something you brought up I'd love to talk a little more about is the role autos might play in the future. Do you see them potentially filling a niche in terms of maybe little windows where other cultivars aren't quite suitable? Or do you think it's kind of a different domain to what the farms will be working with long term in a certain respect? Yeah, you know, it's been slow at first, but oh my God, it's game on with autos right now. Holy shit. They're fucking nice. They're freaking nice, dude. I have this beautiful garden over here that, um, yeah, friend Ryan had worked on with Humboldt Seed Organization and um, these auto OGs, fastest growing plants I've ever seen in my life, like just stunning. And I just direct sowed them. They're feminized. They're, uh, yeah, it was a project we did locally and they are uh, just phenomenal. Like I have... Um, yeah, there are, some of them are above my shoulder, almost as tall as me, just filling out everywhere. Freaking smell amazing. There's bubble gum, there's fruit, there's gas, and um, incredibly sturdy stalks and uh, and incredible trichome production. Like I don't, you know, it's like it's not like how autos work. Um, the work's been done, and uh, there's a lot that can be done. And actually, looking at these, the just the stalks i'm like damn these would be amazing fiber plants too like if you're able to both harvest the flowers and the fibers because with autos you have so many close to each other that you're growing so many stalks you know that um i could see like there being kind of a cool combo of that because uh, man they're 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 thick and stocky a thing about autos that's really interesting too is um just how reactive they are to their environment. They are uh, metabolic machines. They grow incredibly fast or they, or they don't at all. Um, they, the conditions really mean a lot. It's really easy to have them stunt out and be really small um, at different times of year. Like they don't want to be like cold or, or too wet. They definitely don't want to be eaten by banana slugs all winter long like they were here. Um, but the ones <laughs> that I, I, I just direct sowed at the perfect time for um, to get them to be able to veg in this and, and flower during the, the mid of the summer um, are just, it's just game on. And the ones that went right in the ground uh, grew incredibly fast and I've never watered them. Um, just, and I think they really like that. Uh, they don't want to be too wet. There's obviously there's places where they would, just dry out and die, but this isn't one of them. They can tap in and um, the, the soil biology is, is rich. And so it, it, it holds onto moisture pretty well. And I'm in an area that's relatively, it, it's green and, and it gets a, 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 the marine moisture. It hasn't rained, but they, uh, they really enjoy just being able to tap in. They don't want much water, but they do want to be able to eat. So I did amend them ahead of time, like um, some fish bone and bakashi and, kelp and um some trace mineral and that that's all uh and yeah they just they just go the ones in pots are definitely considerably smaller um and any ones that had that were left in the four inch pots like i did i 
planted a bunch and then I decided to fill in some of the gaps a little bit more with some plants that were a week, uh, that were in some four inch pots a week later. And, uh, you know, about half the size just in that time. And that's how much like you lose every day that, uh, that they don't get to just go. So they're just, they're metabolic machines. So when you, when you dial it in, um, and what works in your, your place, like super powerful, what you can do with autos and, um, as we continue to like just cross in awesome flavors, awesome attributes, like, you know, autos will be doing all the different things that we'd want them to be doing, you know, whether it's for good hash, whether it's for CBD, whether it's just insanely good flowers. And, but I also think, yeah, fiber and all kinds of uh, other aspects are, are very viable with, with autos. And um, I'm just stunned with what I've seen with these ones this year. It's a, it's a whole nother world the last two years in autos. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, the guys at Mephisto have certainly really done a lot of work in, I think a lot of consumers' eyes, they made people realize you can do good stuff. And now people recognize yeah. across the board there's there's good autos. My question has been doing a lot of great work too. Yeah, certainly. Friends there for that work. Well, I was just going to ask, can we expect a black dog auto down the line? And if so, would you want to just cross it to a Ruderalis and keep it black dog or more like cross it to like an OG auto and have like a hybrid-y sort of thing? Uh, yes, that's being that's being figured out. <laughs> but, but man, these OG autos are looking so nice with it too. Um, I mean, I'll be making the cross regardless, but uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what works out from there. And there's definitely potential for that. And I think it would actually lend really well to that because it's already got a very consistent quality that works well for lots grown uh, smaller together um, and, and high production. So I think that's highly likely. Uh, that would be a couple years probably, um, but highly likely. Yeah, sure. And the other thing you brought up, which was really interesting to me was, and you've said it a few times, dry farming. And the reason why I'm interested in this is because I feel like as the concept takes off more, there's more of a demand for seed because obviously clones don't do very well in a dry farming situation. Do you think that is a possible situation where outdoor growers move away from clones almost entirely and are just using seed because of the benefits, maybe in a dry farming context, maybe in general, but do you think that they're going to move more consistently to seed and a little away from clone? Um. I mean, the market's still going to demand certain clone varieties. That's always going to be the case. And there's certain dry farm areas that can still grow clone cultivars pretty, pretty well. Um, high water farms being one of them. But, um, but in general, they just grow all seed, actually, these dry farms. Um, and they super prefer that, uh, the way they tap in and, and yeah, the expression. And um, there are a few dry farms growing some of these autos right now. So... Um, yeah, we'll get to see exactly how they're expressing there. I think uh, that absolutely makes it like the dream of just uh, direct sowing feminized autos and doing nothing um, on dry farms. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> something that is very much uh, probably, I mean, well, happening on small scales this year and, and, and will just grow, I'm sure, next year and, and the following years. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So something I wanted to chat with you because we recently had him on the show was the legend himself, Irizan. And yeah. I know that you've been working with some varieties and you guys are friends and have got some sort of work together. Would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight into what you're working with and what your hopes are to do with that? 
Yeah. Um, man, it just like made my heart sing to hear that shout out from him. I just respect his work so much and consider him a great friend and um, such a great friend to cannabis and just honestly, like the world uh, really respect the work that he's doing tremendously. I think he's one of the most important people in cannabis and uh, I, I love him for it. Uh, to, to be able to work with these things from all these different places where he's done the, the documentation, um, not just of the plant, which he does an amazing job of, but of the terroir and the culture and the, um, the factors that led up to that, you know, that kind of variety existing. Um, it, yeah, it's just amazing. So all these different parts of the world, they get to, to read about, you know, the culture, what, you know, what they were producing, um, you know, and are these hash multi-generational, uh, hash communities? Are they, um, you know, specific farmers? Are they like totally true primordial land race? And, uh, one of the, the most amazing things that's to have in the garden right now is, um, seeds from seed plants from, uh, low lab Valley in, um, Kashmir and, uh, Deepak Irazin had, uh, he had brought these, um, he, he was documenting the seeds out there and, um, the these plants growing in the forests of, of Kashmir in the low lab Valley. And he paid attention to the pollination and the males coming out and then came back out, uh, to collect seeds and got just all these amazing pictures of them. And these are true, um, true wolves basically like if you were to you put it in context of dogs you know like we have all our different hybrids and stuff and this these are wolves in their environment um and it's kind of like cannabis for the land before time because it's not affected by any other um feral varieties or, or cross-pollination it's not affected by human encroachment it's not affected by light pollution um they just are what they are and what's amazing about that is cannabis is cannabis, man. Like these are still straight cannabis plants and uh, they're incredibly interesting and unique. And uh, I love, I have a time-lapse on them right now and I like watching them at night and they like, they just super tuck their leaves down real tight to the stem. And then right at like four in the morning, I mean, all the plants do this a little bit, but these do it really extreme. They just start to like wake up and it's a total like morning yoga, just like, and they already know where the sun's going to be way, you know, like an hour before it gets there, just getting into position. And, um, it's a beautiful dance to watch. And, um, you know, just right now I'm getting to see the first male, you know, starting to show and, and the first females and there's even a pink pistol coming off of one of them. Um, amazing, um, you know, carotene in production and anthocyanin production and um, it, like the, um, yeah, they're just really interesting plants, man. Uh, they're ready to protect themselves, you know, from the environment. The thing that I find really interesting about them was their seeds too, um, which are incredibly small. They're probably about a tenth of the size of a normal, like domesticated variety, like black dog or something. And um, they they also take a while to germinate, and not a whole lot of them germinate like quickly. And a lot of this, I think, has to do with um, you know what what works for survivability out there, because nobody's um, so being like nobody's saving the seeds and then, and then starting them like you would in a 
in a variety that would start to be domesticated where somebody's like, oh, I like this flower and you're smelling it and then you keep it and then you start the seeds from that. That's, that's starting that work towards domestication pretty quickly. Um, but these, are, because nobody's doing that, they're wind dispersed more. They're like small, they're ready to like fall out of the plant easy. And so they're kind of sharp lemon shaped, uh, teeny little seeds. And then they don't want to germinate before the, it's the right time of year. Otherwise they would just germinate and get killed by like snow or, um, you know, the wrong climate. So they're just, um, they're well adapted. Like where a domesticated variety, you add water to it. And it's like, Oh, it germed in like, you know, within 24 hours, you know, and that's something to celebrate. Um, but that would be death in the wild environment. You know, it's like if all those seeds germ germinated the second they hit the ground and water hit them, then they'd all just die that winter. Um, so it's just interesting, uh, those quick changes that happen and, and not just the plant, but just right in the beginning with seed morphology and seed behavior. Um, so that was really interesting just to learn from them. And the way they germinate is so slow. Like it's like, they don't just shoot out the radical. It's like this slow goo of white radical. That's kind of just over the course of days <laughs> starts to come out and then they grow all small and little. And, but when, when they go, then they start to like reach a bit and they have like these amazing um, branches that kind of swing down low and come up and, nice narrow leaves and I'm sure they're going to have a decent amount of color and well, some will, but yeah, you see purple and green varieties. You see full on trichome production, you see um, CBD and THC production. So it's just kind of interesting, you know, even from the early uh, days, cannabis had all this potential stored in it. And, I, and that's kind of what I'm seeing in this too, that it was all there. But what, what we see with our, our, all the varieties and all the things that we have now is how that relationship has evolved, you know, that, that mutualistic relationship that we entered into um, with cannabis, like that's, what's different, you know, between uh, a true primordial and these domesticated varieties is our relationship with them. But I don't know. It makes me think though, that maybe low lab was like these, the, these early varieties still could produce all of these incredibly useful things for humans um, and our medicine. And I, I think about dogs and how, um, you know, like wolves are, are adapted for a location, for a forest, for that place. They're high, you know, they're ready to survive, but they have no um, relationship with humans. The humans are something to be avoided and everything, but a dog is like, everything is in they're engaged with how do we interact and and uh, bring um, benefit to a human they're always studying our face they're always wanting to know what we're feeling they're wanting to know what the next job that they can do um and that was like this mutualistic relationship that got entered into a long time ago and that became this evolutionary shift between a wolf and a dog and all of a sudden now like this wild animal will watch our livestock. Like it won't eat them. It will guard them and protect them for us. I mean, that's a wild jump for a, an animal to do. Um, they'll go to war for us. They will watch our children. They will, um, you know, allow us to grow crops on our land without pigs, like rooting it up. They will hunt for us. They'll, in the case of like, yeah, the, um, Saluki in Egypt, like 3000 years ago, they'll chase a rabbit down and grab it and bring it 
back to you, <laughs> like at 45 miles an hour. They're highly specialized bred uh, animals that, that quickly adapt to whatever we want. And like human envisions something and creates a breeding program and makes selections just so quickly that stuff happens. And it doesn't happen like that with other species. And I think the difference is that there was a moment of mutualism um, and an evolutionary strategy for that between humans and cannabis and humans and, and dogs. That's, it's super similar. And I think that's why they're so similar in, in how we look at breeding with them too. Um, but yeah, the low lab gets to teach me a lot about, um, about what was and, and what is. Yeah, what a phenomenal answer. I mean, you you actually answered the next question I was going to ask, which was, why do we see so many breeders also breed dogs? But there you go, you, you, you nailed it, you nailed it. Well, and I did the same thing too. I had a dog envision in my mind and I went like crazy for years and bred like the father, and the, you know, had the grandmother and, and mom and like yeah, all the generations and I did it. I made the exact dog in my mind and it was so incredible, but they all passed away now and and they're they're in the living soil here and um actually shit that make that brings me to a um another uh story uh involving Erasmus. uh so he he had uh i had got the um uh mazari sharif seeds from him he had, uh the mazari which were um wildly they were labeled wild um i believe they have domestic feral influence because of um, how nice they are and also like the way the seeds are. Um, but they, uh, God, just the biggest, the most amazing fan leaves. Like you'd have like a plant that was like two feet tall that had a, a fan leaf that was like 16 inches like long or something. It was, it was crazy. Um, and so these were really beautiful plants to like have growing in the garden. And um, our dog Ashley um, last year had uh developed a cancer in her um her jaw that just grew a big cancerous tumor right in front of her face it was just it was really it was really tough you know just the but she was you know she was fine for so long we you know we live in a beautiful place took her to the beach every day fed her fried chicken and um you know made every day you know great until um until it was time yeah awesome. awesome but um so when she passed, though, um, we dug a grave and uh, right next to her, her mom and dad. And uh, her dad has a beautiful tree that's growing above her. And um, she, we laid her in the ground and, and inoculated her with, uh, you know, good beneficial uh, fungus and, and, and compost and lots of worms and strafaria and oyster mushrooms and all that kind of stuff shiitakes and had her adorned with things ready to return her to the living soil but then um she liked to eat cannabis and she was actually particularly good at um identifying um she she's she liked uh full spectrum uh cannabinoids too so she'd get those like type twos almost always she's like i like a little cbd with my thc and uh, she was, was just anyway so we grabbed some of the like last leaves that she was uh munching on and then i'm looking at these giant mazar leaves and i'm just like oh i gotta gotta add that to it and so there's a bouquet of flowers and cannabis leaves that were adorned and laid on top of her grave and uh, this time of year, uh, her father's tree had had all these white 
beautiful um, flowers uh, blossom on them. And they were starting to, they were in the tail end of the blossoming and ready for the petals to fall. And I shook the tree and all these petals started raining down gently and, and littered the grave in a very beautiful aesthetic way um, with this nice bouquet on top of it. And I had taken a picture of this um, before we buried her and had a fire and, you know, drank some tequila and cried. And, um, and when I was talking to Deepak, I Razin next, um, he had, uh, I, I, I told him this story and, and you know, I, I let him know that there was a Mazar leaf on her grave. And he's like, do you know what Mazar means? And I was like, no. He's like, Mazar means grave. Mazar e Sharif is grave of the saint. And I'm like, Ashley was a saint. So, so I, um, I had already actually pollinated a, a, a Mazar uh, with um, a Black Dog BC6. And so I put that on top of her grave to grow the seeds. And so this year I'm growing some of the um, St. Ashley Mazar, St. Ashley's Mazar. Wow, what a beautiful story. That's that's incredibly touching. I uh I, I it makes me wonder. Do you think that the process of incorporating whether it be ashes, whether it maybe be if it's a dog you might be able to use the full thing. Do you think that this is something which people could benefit from incorporating more? Cuz I remember I mentioned it to Josh and Kelly of Dragonfly and I think she said her mum um has her she's got her mother's ashes in one of her greenhouses and I was like, "Man, that's that's what I want for me." Hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, from a science, it's just, it's impossible to say what's what or because there's so many variables. But one thing I know that uh, plants respond to love. And uh, if you put that into it, it means something. And, and, um, and I mean, the soil beneath that plant, the soil that's, that returned her body is, is absolutely alive. And all of the organisms returning her are, um, yeah, doing a process of love of returning that organic matter back to life, back to rejuvenation. So, yeah, I think that process is powerful. Certainly. And and do you have any hopes for the long-term trajectory of the 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 strain and the cross or is it just uh, like a gift? Holy crap, it's one of the most beautiful plants I've ever seen in my life. It's so pretty. So we'll see, but oh my God, the leaves are just so dark and big and reptilian. It's so healthy and it just, I just love it. It's just, the plant just screams like love. Um, and so I have one that like started early. I had a whole bunch of slugs eat my first rounds. Uh, this is a very intense area for slugs, but um, I started a whole another round of them too. So I have a really good group right now to, um, to make the next generation with. But um, yeah, there's a couple people growing some right now too. Um, I think actually Indigo Farms up in Oregon uh, just let me know that uh, St. Ashley's Mazar made it into their um, research uh, plot that will uh, yeah so I can't wait to go go see her up there and there's a other, couple other special friends I, I, I'll be able to probably see see what she does in those places and um, yeah we'll see what the future holds but man uh, she's it's just so pretty but right off the bat 
Yeah, what a what what a, like a powerful and beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. A question which kind of come to mind when I was thinking of that, and especially when you were talking about the Mazar and some of the Indian cultivars, is do you think that the expression you're getting from them, this really nice natural expression you spoke about, where you know they're almost given the sun salutations, do you th- do you think that that might have been lost almost if you tried to take those same seeds and like grow them in a like a sort of a salt and cocoa environment like do you think that there's a synergy from that you're trying to grow them naturally in the way they were originally conceived well yeah absolutely um i mean i don't think they'd be doing the sun salutations if there wasn't the sun going up and down and you know it's like and they wouldn't be choosing the part of the sky to start aiming towards before because it's always the same freaking thing right above them making that buzzing noise um yeah i don't know i think like do you how do you feel like when you're in a a desk with a bunch of like noisy fluorescence in school like <laughs> first like being out in the woods like on a, on a botany tour or something you know it's like i think yeah of course of course it's different uh it's a completely different experience for them um yeah i mean their environment everyone's environment affects everything and they're very alive and conscious and um are constantly uh adapting thinking doing things and feeling things um and they feel our love they feel our connection they feel the environment that they're in and it's definitely way different uh in an indoor environment than a natural one but i mean a natural one could be really rough on them too you know they want they want to be drying out and dying in the sun or 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 in a whole cold harsh winter or neglected in a greenhouse and forgot you know it's like they still gotta have their soils their their roots uh in a nice soil or or some kind of nutrition yeah of course they're very efficient too that's the thing too that yeah that's neat with the low lab too like they you know you could tell that they would just make do with whatever they have. You know, they they don't need this like giant amount of resources put out in front of them. Like they could grow in a crack, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that, the hardy. So a topic which comes up somewhat frequently on the show is the discussion around the idea of, do you think seeds created in an organic or even better regenerative farming practice produce better seeds like maybe hardy things like that do you think that plays into it or would you be happy to buy seeds um that were produced in salts compared to ones that were produced in soil um yeah so i mean there's definitely a difference i I mean obviously i have my feelings about you know the intention and love that we put into things and so getting you know seeds from some of my favorite regenerative farmers who have been doing this work and been breeding and and been putting love into their their land and into their projects um means a hell of a lot more to me than anything else and i don't really have like any extra space for anyone else's stuff but my own so like (laughs) it's just like the really cool close people i really love what they're doing that that make it in um so uh but um there's a lot of ways to do things and there's really a lot of like, you know, let's say you're making some feminized autos, like maybe that's the most efficient way to do them. I'm not going to say it's not. And if you're doing the correct genetic work and you're doing the quality standards ahead of time, then um, yeah, there's, there's cases where those seeds might be uh, desirable, useful for me. But the thing is 
if I'm going to do something like that, there has to be the, I, I, there has to be the work behind it. And I have to know that like, it is what it is and it has to be like super useful. Um, and yeah, so like, and I think that's going to be the, you know, a lot of large scale, um, farming and stuff like, you know, they're going to need very consistent seeds produced and, you know, the way that that's done, um, isn't always going to be, you know, a farmer pulling, pouring all their love and heart into their living soil plant. Sometimes it's just going to be straight production. And if the genetic work is, is done correctly, then, um, you know, then those are going to be useful seeds. Yeah, for sure. So, Good point to bring it up, I think. How did you initially get into the regenerative farming movement? Was it just like a natural progression or did you meet someone and they really kind of changed your trajectory, so to speak? How did that happen? It's, it was being here um, during the time when... Um, well, there was a lot of indoor growing, which was like, you know, it's not regenerative at all, but it was mostly like kind of college age kids growing indoor the Arcata area and just Humboldt in general. Um, and there was a lot of outdoor growing too, but there was, um, you know, the, the high prices of purple and then Bubba and then OG, uh, drove this, um, incredible insanity of what was possible economically, um, which ended up being very disastrous environmentally. Um, so like all of a sudden, like, Hey, it makes sense to freaking make some giant underground, you know, several hundred light grow run by a diesel generator that you literally truck tankers out and fill next to a sensitive heart watershed. And that was happening a lot. And it was just like, well, this is insane. And this is all based off of prohibition. You know, this is like, they have to hide and we're destroying like our environment because of these incredibly, high prices that are, that shouldn't exist in a real, you know, uh, economic, <laughs> uh, reality that's not messed up by the government's war on drugs. Um, it just destroyed, you know, it makes inefficiencies. It creates cancers. It creates environmental issues when things like that happen. And at this time too, a lot of the indoor growers, um, that were more in town that were, you know, college age started going out to the hills and they were taking what they had indoor where they were making good money on these, uh, you know, varieties grown inside. And actually, you know, more varieties went back then too, but then, you know, OG started to become, take over harder and harder. Of course, Bub always got good prices, but there was a lot of great varieties that still did pretty good. Um, but it was the beginning one was that purple uh, when LA was just crazy about purple. It just drove this huge, um, change in the economics of, of the whole thing. And so when all these growers started going out with indoor tactics too, and even how they're growing their outdoor flowers and depths and stuff where they're like going to the hydro store and buying all these expensive things that only really make sense in small grows inside and bring it like large scale and just like, wow, you're spending so much money and you're actually fucking shit up instead of, you know, <laughs> cultivating the soil. You're like bringing a bunch of, you know, engineered soil from freaking really far away and bringing it up into the mountains and like, you know, all this stuff like mined in Canada and, and sent down and then bringing all this perlite and bringing it out to these sensitive areas and then using pesticides and all of that. And it was just like, dude, this is not, this is not working. This isn't how it should be. Um, and it's totally out of balance. And 
uh, and and the thing is, a lot of like good people are are doing this too, because it's just like, what do you know? You know what you know from the grow shop. You just take what you're doing small and you apply it larger. So it's like there's not, it's not like anyone's like out there evil. Oh, I'm gonna fuck up the environment and do this. You know, they're just trying to grow some good weed in the way that they know. Some people gave no fucks and like you know we're total assholes about it but like, <laughs> not saying not the case but you know some people just were ignorant to to it or and just were and just were trying to do their thing um so i, I just saw this moment where you know there's a lot of education that needed to happen and and change in the way people did things and what i loved about it is it made shit cheaper and so like going to like a grow where you know they were just growing with salts and you know using avid and maxi and and whatever extra crazy salt stuff whether it's bushmaster <laughs> or fucking whatever insanity and uh you know and not really get, getting the best results really you know it's like you're probably not gonna you know might look kind of cool but it's probably not tasting that great you probably have some disease issues all that stuff and so there are certain farms where it's like, well, how about we build a whole bunch of biodynamic compost right, right here and, or we just cover crop, we mulch that in, or we just do simple things, amending with, you know, fish and kelp and bakashi and trace minerals. And, um, and then uh, there's one farm too, where like the neighbors were cattle ranchers too. And so, and they had a bunch of equipment so they could just go and clean out their, um, their cattle bins and or their pens and um you know that was benefiting them and then we had this like nice resource to work with and i'd utilize all kinds of other stuff on the property to to compost that in and then they put that on and then saw the best year that they'd ever seen and had to use uh i think they said a ninth of the water that they were using before and didn't have to buy anything and had by far the best year that they ever saw so it's like when somebody all of a sudden sees that they're like, wait, I was spending a bunch of money, fucking shit up, like not be doing the right things for the watershed or the, the end patients. And it's like, all I have to do is just like do a few things, thinking about the soil um, plant, do nothing uh, besides pull tarps or whatever they're doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and I get better results for literally like no money spent. Like, so yeah, you know, I just saw that as as something. Hey, I think these ideas can spread, <laughs> uh, and they yeah. did. You know, and I loved it when you know, like more, you know, maybe a when a, a redneck is is spreading this idea, or a hippie spreading this <laughs> idea, or you know, a, an environmentalist, or a law officer, or what. You know, all of a sudden, like you know, became. I ended up on a panel with like the ag commissioner and the sheriff. You know, and it was kind of funny. It was like ag commissioner, uh, sheriff. Biovortex. And it's like, what the fuck is a biovortex? You know, like we know what an ag commissioner is and the sheriff is. This guy's a biovortex. Um, and it was, you know, super fun being on the panel and having this debate. They're, you know, they're not debate, like they fully were, you know, just like, hell yeah, you know, uh, with all this stuff. Like this, that's the kind of stuff we want to see, um, you know, and, and as things become more open. Um, it was kind of funny too, like correcting the ad commissioner on the pronunciation of Michael Butenil because he kept saying Michael Butenil. And it's like, dude, it's like one of the most important like issues with like cannabis in California at that time, because it was, uh, um, that's like the, um, active ingredient in Eagle 20 and like other things that are designed for systemic powdery mildew, uh, control. And they're, they're, kind of nasty poisons uh that concentrate really well in in concentrate so they like so 
if you're making hash, you're making uh, uh, BHO or any of those kinds of concentrates, the, the microbutanol concentrates would be very high um, and they kind of would come out with the THC that it was hard to separate it from that. And what was actually kind of cool about that is all of a sudden everyone started failing that use that, you know, like, like all these different extractors just started seeing fails everywhere. And, um, and the thing is, it's so systemic that someone might not even had to use it. They got clones from the, someone who had used it. And, uh, you know, you might not see uh, noticeable levels in the flower, but once you get the, the concentrate, uh, you're, you're actually at a fail level. And um, that was a huge economic uh, driver for people to clean up their act, uh, having those, um, uh, those standards and, and testing and seeing what was coming out in concentrates and just how pervasive certain things were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, like there's a lot of like shitty things that end up working out the way it needs to, you know, like end up bringing more information or awareness to things, you know. Um, yeah certainly and I mean you raise an interesting point there something I've heard a lot recently is this idea it's just anecdotal but I mean I think it might resonate with you is someone said to me you don't really see bud with pm these days you just you just see a lot of concentrates and I was like I was like yeah that's true isn't it like pm's just just you don't it's just gone like as in obviously it's all just getting turned to concentrates um and so, yeah, it speaks to the point you mentioned. And just to build on that, what do you think is kind of the next step or the direction in which big ag is going to go? Do you think it's still this existential kind of threat to the, the, the people in the industry like what we initially thought? Or do you think there's going to be more of an even playing field, kind of like what we see in Canada where the big firms are just really actually failing quite miserably? Yeah, I, uh I don't think, uh, like I know of any of the local or regen farms that are, are we're planning on going into the um, large scale phytochemical <laughs> like <laughs> business or into large scale fiber production and stuff. To you know, it's like these are these are um, people still want craft flowers, uh, and I kind of think um, that those that the more educated the public is, the more that they're gonna want stuff like that. And I don't really think. Uh, the large companies are going to be able to really take the place of that. But they, of course, like as far as production for medicines, for biomass, for all of that, um, it's a big ag world. Um, but there's ways to adapt to that and hopefully um, can get these ideas of how they can save money in the way that they are growing and, and not just have like it be, uh, you know, all these salts, pesticides and all this plastic. That's a big issue right now too, is all these hemp fields in Oregon all over is just the use of these, all the plastic mulching. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then all the, 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 the drip lines and just so much resources to grow a plant. And it, you know, that's one thing is, is, people are just going to have to do it really cheap and with less resources and like all that stuff takes a lot of labor and you have to buy it and all that stuff. And so I'm just hopeful that, that those economic drivers will help the uh, ecological um, outcomes of, of farming practices on large scale when it comes to cannabis. Uh, Cause I mean, just 
think about that cost of like running drip lines to everything of putting that mulch out or the plastic running all the plastic all the time buying all of those things and then like all of that shit just goes in the dump and it's like killing the soil and it's it's just yeah i don't know it's insane yeah. But really, like, you know, when I'm looking at these autos in the garden that are just were germinated and growing, I haven't watered or done anything. It's like, to me, that's the future of big ag. Like, you <laughs> just the do nothing approach. And it's just like, and really, it's, it's, it's actually the breeding and the genetics and like, you know, getting quality stuff, you know, sovereign fields and, um, you know, done a great job, like producing seeds with the right quality for those large scale uh applications and having the, the feminized uh with it which you know is like kind of interesting from because i really like all natural and regular breeding and regen but you know having feminized is super useful for certain things it's also useful for selfing and understanding different things about plants and doing other things but um but being able to direct sow i mean fuck that's a big deal for uh, less resources if everyone if you have to pot every plant and veg it and then go it out and plant it and um every every step that you can take out uh work or resource being used and still get a a, a nice production i think is um the way to go and and and, and in general that's always going to be a more environmental way because um the ecological is economical sure and what are your thoughts on genetic modification of cannabis? Because our buddies Chimera and Sam Skunkman over at Molecular Farms are certainly doing it. Do you feel like that's a bit of a step too far or do you feel like there might be value in that? Oh, I think there's value in everything. I just want, I, I'm, I'm not a, I, I, yeah, I want to learn everything. And, and if something makes sense, then yeah, yeah, I'm not like a, I can't just say, you know, fuck. I mean, you can just pull out like one thing and then lose an expression that you didn't want. Like, that's great. Like that could be super useful. Um, what I, what I'm afraid of actually more than genetically modifying or, and how you want to define that can be different. Like, or is it, are you talking about a CRISPR like, or, mm. I mean, really actually breeding is genetically modifying. Like what it just, what I'm doing is genetically modifying it through the work that we're doing as a human. Um, you know, I might not be taking a, a segment of DNA and, and pulling it out or putting something else in. Um, I think there's a lot of use in pulling out something that might give an undesirable uh, expression. And why not see what we can do with that? I, I don't see why not. Um, but I do have a fear that uh, with patents, um, once you genetically modify something, then that's like a really easy place to be like, I own this or something. And um, so making sure that we don't, that we keep potential free uh, with this plant, medical and breeding potential for everyone to be able to work with it in any way that we want. Um, so yeah, my fear is more the legal repercussions of people trying to own different things through gen genetically modified work than the actual uh, process because I'm super interested to see what we can do. You know, if you can just pull out a little segment, not a PM, like, I don't know, why not? Okay, let's do it. Hell yeah, hell yeah. So just to. But, I, I, but, but I, I way prefer doing it through natural selection and just observation and, and working with the plant that way. I, I, I do, I feel more. Um, I don't know. That, they're just, that resonates with me better, but um, I'm not against anything really. 
unless it hurts the environment or it hurts people's human rights. Yeah. Yeah, good good rules to to live by. Uh just to loop back to a topic before because we we commonly get asked this by our listeners. Let's say that you totally in line with everything you've said and everything you believe, but unfortunately, maybe you live in the city, maybe in an apartment or something like that, you know, and and the goal is to get to a farm one day, but just unfortunately, that's not quite now. Do you think that there is like, you can still do your best to, you know, do living organic soil indoors and like, is there a compromise that you feel like, you know, you're doing the best for the situation you've got or do you feel like, unless you're outdoors, it is really quite hard to try to, you know, get to the standard that you're at? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I freaking, I think that the the personal little indoor is just such a oasis and a, a beautiful thing to celebrate. Um, I'm not against that at all. You know, I, I don't like the insane large scale use of, of lights, like especially in areas where the sun's just beating. It's just like an insane use of, of resources and energy, but like, man, to have a relationship with cannabis in, in your own apartment, or uh, if you're in a place where the growing conditions aren't that good, or just to be able to have cannabis year round, like, fuck yeah I, I i think that's a wonderful thing to do and i think it is super doable with with living soil type um production and i think people have a really good time you know doing those multiple years of of cultivating soils you know people are proud about how many runs they've done in the same living soil bed and you know they show how they keep getting better when they understand certain ways of of giving back to it um but yeah, I mean, it could be really simple too. like bef- just getting started off. Um, you know, I mean, ideally, like you could be doing a full living soil thing, but if you just want to mix some amendments with some, with, uh, some nice potting soil, uh, well, one thing I like is, is pumice instead of perlite. Um, and, uh, you know, getting some nice worm castings, um, or, ideally making your own from your compost but making sure you don't let too many uh unwanted critters get into the indoor situation that's the where the problem comes in it's because like i want to just like be able to use any compost or living soil in like whatever cool way that you want outside everything stays in balance but second you go inside you know any little extra critters can get out of balance um there's nothing to regulate them and you know, so you, you don't want your thrips and your spider mites and you don't want your fungus gnats and you don't want all those things um, that are, yeah, different flies that might like compost. So being wary of how you avoid all that kind of stuff. Um, I think Bakashi is a super useful tool because if you just mix like an amendment, let's say you're using, um, well, a really good one is like Dragonfly Earth Medicine makes those nice products. Their Radiant Green is a nice one to mix in. Um, and but like just inexpensive stuff is uh fishbone um azomite or just straight trace mineral um you know some kind of fish meal or kelp of course that's bringing stuff from the ocean and you got to think about like how you feel about you know what's going on in the ocean but i guess you know we've polluted everywhere so um (laughs) i don't know you got (laughs) to deal with it i love all the minerals that is stored in kelp and um and yeah, this, the, the nutritional quality of, of fish bone plants seem to really like it. And Bakashi seems to eat it really quickly. And, um, compost teas, um, you know, just having a high quality compost, some, some good quality fish hydroslate, uh, and, and 
you know, good amount of air in a bucket. It's a real simple thing to do. Um, just, and it's a fun thing to do, like looking under the microscope too. Um, and it becomes a whole other part of the cultivation experience because you're like, now you're actually thinking about the microbes and, um, you know, so just putting some good tea, I mean, some good compost and some clean water. And I've, I've been using rainwater because I have a nice rainwater catchment system put in with Dan of High Tide Permaculture a little bit ago. Um, he's also the one that uh, has been a big influence on developing the Regenerative Cannabis Farm Award and, and a lot of uh, the permaculture um, techniques that we put forward. And he's been uh, working uh, with compliant farms and helping people come into environmental and, uh, regulation and um, compliance in uh, the cannabis world. Um, sorry, just, yeah, <laughs> a little tangent there, but it's awesome to be able to work with the rainwater because it's like, it just comes from the sky. It's like the pH is fine. There's nothing in it. And you get to um, bubble up some really clean compost tea that way. Um, and then after like 24 hours or so, then it's fun to look at it under the microscope and see what you got going on. See if you get, uh, you can see the fungal hyphae growing. You can see the clusters of bacteria. You see like the forest systems that are created uh, from the, the um, fungal networks that begin to, develop the mycelial networks and you get to see the um the protozoa like roaming through these forests and going around and eating all kinds of stuff and like um you know when you start to like know what kind of life is is healthy and you know that it's an oxygen environment then um it's a pretty simple and fun thing to do i mean it's just some food like kelp or fish really good quality compost water and, and a bunch of air um you want to have a good aerator and i don't go with stones just go with uh, a straight pipe um it, yeah just you just want it to bubble there you go i didn't know that one there you go i'm going to be getting rid of that air stone um my question it kind of relates to when i was chatting with josh and kelly of dragonfly they said that when you get your property or your soil to like the level yours is obviously at you can even start to see different cannabinoid profile expressions when, you know, maybe your mate grows it out and he's like, yeah, it's, you know, there's no CBD and then you grow it and there's a little bit or like just, just there's a different profile basically. Do you feel like when you really get your microbes working for you and you've got your own little environment churning away that you can get that altered expression? Well, I mean, again, genetics is first. You're not going to all of a sudden see a type 1 variety like, you know, that's all THC, just all of a sudden have some THC, I mean, some CBD in it. If it, if it never has before, that doesn't really happen. Um, and you know, vice versa with a few different things, although, but like, you know, something like CBG, uh, will be affected on harvest time or, or, or environment potentially. Um, but th there's a certain things that are just set into place with the genetics. Um, but certainly the, the levels, you know, are going to be, Play, you know, it's like how much THC is in this one. And, you know, maybe in type two varieties, there might be a play and uh, the percentages, but you're not going to just all of a sudden see THC or CBD out of nowhere where there wasn't any of that genetic to begin with. Um, and then, but with terpenes, you are definitely going to see some different things happening. Um, and certainly stresses could bring out, out different um, uh, compounds being uh produced and um but another thing too though i mean genetics seem to kind of at least dictate what dominant terpenes are going to be and and the order 
um, a bit, but like, again, the percentages could change. So all of a sudden there's like, you know, there's, instead of it producing 2% terpenes, the whole plant's producing four and a half percent terpenes. And that's way different. And maybe the order's a little shifted, but um, the genetics are going to dictate a lot of that. So you're not going to see super wide changes normally, but, um, but you do get different aromas, different expressions, you know, different potencies, different qualities. A lot of the, the, the differences you're going to see are um, in look too, you know, like what did it go dark because it was colder out or did it uh, you know, did it dry out more or was the wind just like ripping it or like, you know, these environmental things are going to mean a lot about the, the end look. And that also means something about um, the trichomes. And then, the curing process is just massive though. That's really going to mean a lot too. Um, you know, like are all these trichomes damaged? Uh, did it get too hot? Did it stay wet too long? Did it, uh, did it dry too fast? Like that's going to just affect, you know, what terpenes are, 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 are there quite a bit. Um, so yeah, it all goes into it, but like, there's certain things that just genetics lock into place and they, they're not going to change that much. Yeah, of course, of course. But actually I'm really excited about looking into this a lot more. And, you know, there are cool things like the grow off that have done this with clonal varieties in different locations. And, um, uh, you know, they actually noticed one terpene that the hadn't been produced by any of the other, of uh, the plants. Um, it, it might've been the Eagles. But they, um, it was only two plants that, that produced it. And both times it was a super stressed environment. They're like, you know, when they asked the grower, it was like, so it could have been a terpene because it wasn't in any of the others, like at all, not no non-detect. And then there was like a, a considerable amount, like, um, was that the, uh, near dial, I think that was. And, uh, yeah, so there's a good chance that stress, uh, would affect that, but being able to look at that kind of those kinds of analytics with control groups will be really useful. And I'm looking forward to doing that this year. I want to do that actually with not just clone varieties, but with tissue culture too. So it can make sure that I have more control on that and, you know, see what like a black dog or cherry lime dog does in, in a few of the different really cool um, farms in our areas, you know, showcase like the difference of a dry farm or a forest or a mountaintop with them. Um, some of the good farmers here. I want to, you know, doing that with time lapse too, and having that linked up with the um, the uh, the weather uh, data collection as well, which is happening with the Appalachian project. Um, there's like nine weather stations going in that are going to be collecting all this cool data, um, and being able to put that all together, you can do a time lapse of the plant growing throughout the whole year and look at all the different weather uh, data at that exact time. And then you could take that all the way into the drying and curing process and then look at the end analytics of everything and, you know, learn a lot about those different spots and start to build, um, you know, uh, real, real data on how genetics um, are affected by different uh, locations. Yeah. I mean, it certainly goes to show that there's just so much work to be done in the field, isn't there? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I always think, I just, my mind always goes to wine, because I just think of like, you know, it's established terroirs, or even cheese, stuff like that, and it's like, yeah, they've been working on it for hundreds of years, and they're really getting it in place now, so we we got a while to go, but, um, but well, just... And then, when you think of like the example of like, 
uh, Erasin, you just had on like like those appellations. Like when we're talking about a variety that's just so adapted to growing, you know, close to the equator, or so adapted to being in the mountains, or being, you know, a certain place north or in the desert, um, and the attributes that go with that, like that's like real like land appellations. But then also the the rich human history of cannabis in India and people in India is just amazing, you know, and like just so many multi-generational farms and just decades or centuries or thousands of years of relationships in, in certain areas growing this plant. Like that's like another level of Appalachian, you know, when we're talking about, well, yeah, we've been growing, you know, these hybrids and clones here for like a couple, two decades or something or three decades or four. Uh, it's like, it's just a different thing. Um, and a lot of the farms are like, especially in the legal thing are like relatively new. And, and there was a time when people were just only growing clones too. Um, it was kind of funny. It was like, it was super weird that I had, seed plants and males like it was like this totally crazy thing for a cannabis grower to have <laughs> like um like for yeah it was just clones um so yeah i don't know i think we have a lot of work to do to to define our area but at the same time california has been this freaking epicenter of just being the the current moment of cannabis like we've been you know as far as like innovations and breeding and the culture and the hash and all of the things. It's like, I mean, there's just so much of that work comes from the culture here. And um, it's a, it is a, a special thing to, to yeah, honor and to acknowledge and, you know, it'd be nice for these craft farmers to be able to have um, that kind of recognition um, like a, a, you know, a wine appellation, um, where it's like, yeah, you are from this place and you are doing these practices and, you know, and then the way that we mix that in with genetics too will be interesting. Of course, we need to do it in a way that's like super open um, and that encourages, uh, you know, farmers to do what makes sense for their place. Um, I don't want anything like, you know, it's like we know what like a Pinot is and we know what a cab is, but like, you know, we know about those grapes and those cultivars, but um, we don't want mon monocultures and cannabis too. We want the farms growing lots of different varieties and we want them breeding for it, you know, and like green source gardens, like, uh, you know, breeding those multi-generations uh, on, on that spot. Um, that's building towards an Appalachian and, and year after year, utilizing their forest and their barnyard waste to build soil fertility. Like that's the kind of stuff that we're, you know, we need to be talking about and honoring. Um, yeah. It can't just be, Oh, you grow this one type of thing in this one place and anything goes, it needs to be more, more special than that. Um, and it needs to be open for, for innovation. But I super look forward to the way that, that, the genetics tie into that because like if you do have some a special genetic you know that your farm becomes associated with or you work with a breeder to develop in that place like we should talk about it and celebrate it and and you know also have some marketing power in and being able to say that it is what it is and um so yeah it's exciting how uh to see how farmers will be um promoted i guess and and you know the way that it will hopefully um help help farmers to well as as things 
become more international. I mean, I feel like the the world will just open up. Um, that full the cannabis prohibition is over. It's just how long it will take um, worldwide, and hopefully, we just see the entire end of the war on drugs. But um, but uh, as that happens, you know, being able to really because it already is special everywhere in the world. You see crazy prices in the UK and Spain and different things for something that was grown in Cali. And, and as, as, as Erasin also uh, mentioned too, the, the insane prices uh, in India for really high quality uh, or, you know, yeah, I mean, what, what, you know, dank weed or whatever, yeah. uh, just going for uh, just a, tremendous amount of money just staggering really to think about and and how much cannabis is in india and how having something that looks like it's from california is worth that much money um so that's the yeah that's real perception those are real things and hopefully it gets backed by the best farmers and breeders and it it is a real thing that the world gets to uh, to know that they are you know getting that kind of quality um, both in practices and genetics yeah, I mean, that's that's so important, right? And I mean, on that note, you know, as we approach the quickfire questions, I wanted to ask you, it feels like historically the reason why these precedents sort of exist is because you've got, you know, your high times and your whatever, which, you know, promotes certain types of cannabis and you look at that and you're like, oh, that's the bee's knees. However, in recent years, we've seen events like High Times and some other notable ones, even like the Emerald Cup have kind of shrunk in size a little bit. But we've seen, on the other hand, the uprising of more kind of um, community-led things like the Regenerative Farm Award and the Regenerative Farming Conferences. Do you think this trend will continue in that we might see some of the bigger corporate ones get a little less popular and some of the more grassroots ones grow in size? What's your kind of predictions for that? Well, shit, I mean, I don't know if I have any predictions in COVID world for events at the moment. (laughs) Um, I think the way, uh, yeah, some of the, you know, award-based stuff, yeah, we'll just have to be creative this this year. yeah, I mean, it's it's always my hope that that it will continue in that direction. And so far, I feel that it, it has, um, you know, like every year at the Emerald Cup, I just like, I feel like, yeah, there's just amazing talks and there's amazing, flower, you know, and it's, um, and more awareness. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I don't know what the future of, of the larger events are in the, the really near future right now. Um, I do like the idea of, you know, utilizing the fact that large events aren't really like the appropriate thing to do at the moment um, and getting creative with um, in, in online ways of, of getting this kind of information um, about cannabis medicine out through contests and stuff. So um, yeah, I, I like playing around with the, the different ways that we can really explore something fully because we can, choose what we then curate to go online and, and to um, it's, and you can really dive into a lot of information. I'm not, uh, do you know the cultivation classic in um, Portland? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of it. Cool. It was an event that I helped uh, start or start, you know, I was working on from the beginning and, and uh, a lot of the con- con- concepts with it. And it was a, uh, you know, the regenerative cannabis farm award also, um, 
was a part of that from the beginning too. And, um, and kind of that idea towards living soil uh, production mixed with just really good um, science and analytics. And uh, what was really cool is the last two years, it's adapted its um, contest into more of a, like a real patient study. Um, And Dr. Addy Ray of um, Smart Cannabis and Steph Bernhardt, they um, had built this, this platform of Smart Cannabis, um, where they get about, a, I think uh, the year before it was 150 um, patients or reviewers or, you know, judges. And that uh, fulfilled actually a wide demographic, um, you know, of, of different genders and backgrounds and ages and all of that. And then um, they each are trained in sampling each one and there's, space in between the sampling and they can um fill out you know the how they're feeling uh as as they sample each different thing um and all that information and data is collected and uh put together and then of course the analytics are run on every flower and they do these really nice posters with um uh that include the terpenes as a full donut all divided up. So you can immediately see the terpenes and the, the different percentages that are, um, that are there. And so you can quickly see, okay, it's a, you know, myrcene dominant, like beta caryophylline uh, number two. And then you can, and then there's a line that shows all of the cannabinoids and it's a, it's a really nice long panel. It's got everything in there. Um, and then it's got also a intake picture of the flower and a, um, a resource innovation score and a resource innovation center started this power tool that uh, basically gave a um, energy efficiency score to the, to the operation, to the farm or, or grow. And then um, it also had an aroma intensity score on that too. And so you, they, there's a whole like wall of, or um, hall of all these posters up. And so you can look and see all the type one and type two and type three, and you can kind of see the way the terpenes group and different things. And you can just get a lot of analytics, like all laid out in front of you all quick. And then you get to hear about how the different varieties affected the different uh, people in the group. And they have different um, awards that are kind of interesting. Like one would be the nose nose. And so everyone that said that they really liked the aroma of something uh, also really liked the effect. Um, and the one that was most consistent for that, I got that one. I think that was Tropicana cookies or something. Um, and then uh, there was, you know, there's other things too, like the most consistent cultivar. So like if everyone says, yeah, it made me sleepy and happy and described like the same terms uh, of the effects, then that would be really consistent where maybe something else like somebody's super energetic and somebody got couch locked, you know, like, um, so there's a lot of different ways to look at, um, you know, awards and, and, you know, what is the best and what are we looking at and best for who and for what, you know, what was woman's choice? You know, that's another category. Um, and these are all really useful demographics, uh, for retail, but also for medicine and, and also for people just to kind of start to begin to know like where they want to start with a, a cannabis variety, um, if they're working with a certain issue or, um, so I see that curating different, um, science driven and also quality and, uh, experience driven, um, 
events like online could be really useful. I've, I've been having some fun ones with uh, different ideas with, um, yeah, enjoying hash and, and different flowers and really diving into um, both the science and then just the gourmet aspects, um, putting that all together. I, th I think there's a cool future for it, but um, it's going to adapt and change this year. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And I mean, you raise a brilliant point there. If someone was just looking for not anything in specific, just good stuff in general, what of your lines are you currently really vibing with that you would just recommend across the board to people being like, you'll be, you'll be pretty happy with this? Yeah, see, that's, I always have trouble with that question. Normally when I work with someone, it's like, okay, we're going to sit down for four hours and we're going to run through your <laughs> farm and we're going to work backwards on each thing. And, you know, I'm going to overwhelm you and then we're going <laughs> to work it all out at the end. Um, so no, it's like, for what, you know? Uh, no, I don't, but yeah. Um, I mean, for ice water, for just really beautiful flowers, um, yeah. Okay. I'll just list them off. Let's see. Uh, okay. Well, again, I mean, we already talked about cherry lime dog and the multiple different versions of that. Uh, definitely uh, would be excited to, for how, yeah, how that will look as, as more things get released. Um, Black dog is just the, the good old flagship um, and always available with Humboldt seed organization. Um Probably, yeah. Looking forward to some new things with Neptune soon. Um, actually, I'm kind of been slacking. I just like to put everything together really well, and like, yeah, need to get on that. Um, I think Banana Dog is going to be really useful for a lot of people. Um, it just yields super well, super easy to grow, grows fast, crazy healthy, uh, super resistant. Um, Works great for flowers or ice water hash. Good, chunky, beautiful flowers that look insane in the jar, but also yield like crazy. Um, yeah, just real, yeah, simple, great, great one. Um, Voltron has been amazing. Um, really, really powerful, strong <laughs> flowers for sure. Uh, you get that lum lemon, butter, pepper, uh, and um, yeah, some dough and... Um, super powerful um yeah there was just a write-up with that with alpenglow had had grown some of those other ones um the orange valley dog uh it's been really fun that's a really bright citrus uh incredibly high thc numbers you know seeing in the high 30s regularly had uh saw 34 um and hallucinogenic like you know when i first like <laughs> saw it was like is this real you know and then i hit it and it was just like well, I'm like in high school hallucinating, like, but it's like that kind of, <laughs> it's like bright energy and just super strong. And um, yeah, but the smell is just wonderful. It's total bright orange candy, citrus and gas. And um, looking forward to what um, Mood Main Farms is going to do with that this year. And, um, and also uh, they're doing some of the Cherry Moon uh, version of the Cherry Lime Dog which will be super fun to see. This is the thing that's really exciting to see too, is like the different farms do the different versions of it too. And so Bryceland Forest Farm is going to have these amazing cherry lime dog F3s, which, and they're going to be totally different, unique and amazing. Um, they're different. They're totally different paths that I was going down from the, the cross. So um, yeah, it'll be really fun. You'll get these dark, just freaking cushy, freaking amazing flowers from the cherry moon. And then um, the cherry lime dog is like, uh, 
just so the F3 is just so much bright, crazy fermented fruit goodness. And yeah, it's going to be fun to see. Um, other things, uh, you know, I mean the, the Holy Nano crack like crosses and stuff are just insane for, for hash and for resistance. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've done, a, uh, the Citron is really nice. The Mandarin crosses, um, for, for, CBD too. Um, I, the Canadog was really interesting and actually um, has had some uh, really unique terpene expressions too that um, have to look back into because um, they might be total and <laughs> I don't. They, yeah, it, <laughs> they might be important. <laughs> they might be important ones. Um, um, uh, yeah, good like apple, lemon, and and kind of orange peel flavors and in, in that. And those are like nice three to ones. Um, the Sapphire Sioux that Moon uh, Made Farms actually doing again. It, it, there's a few farms doing that, and uh, Newcomb Family Farms too. The the extracts that came out from the the Newcomb Family Farms uh, project was surprise, surprise, just incredible. Holy crap! Um, yeah, some of the best CBD I've ever tasted out of a pen too. They made some in the pens. What's really amazing with the this is solvent extraction too, but yeah, with the, with that extraction is um, they. Uh, it's just homogenous. Like, you know, you don't have the crashing of, of, of crystals and the separation of terps. It's like this super homogenous mix and just so flavorful and consistently two to one. Um, yeah. It's just like, I could, it's, I don't really like pens. I could smoke on that thing all day. And the cherry lime dog tastes insane out of that too, from the same farm. Uh, well, it's called actually cherry, uh, or sorry, lime pop dog in this case. Cause there was a little lime, lime pop mixed in with that one. Um, but they, yeah, those are from Surprise Surprise and Royal Key, uh, which really fun to see those. Um, Papa Bark, I washed some of uh, Sabretooth's um, Holy Nana Crack uh, times uh, SFV dog that just, fuck, the flavor was so, so good. So, so good. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool to see that come out. When, really love that farm too, Sabretooth Farms. Um other exciting things you know I, I mean the dog named sue the harless sue uh crosses with uh with black dog come out really really desirable cushy beautiful um cbd nugs um they have a little bit more of the um some of the cbd spice and mercine and stuff that's more associated with it but it has this like earthy good cushiness and they also come out um cbdv um rich quite often too which is is fun to see and um kind of some other ones that are standing out right now i should just look through all the plants um athena dog <laughs> always yeah athena dog and dog's gift um are both really fun um so yeah, my Athena Sour Kush uh, number two, which I call Ask Two a lot of times, which actually one of the plants behind me right now is a Ask Ask Nana. It's an Ask uh, Athena Banana SFE dog. But um, yeah, those those Athena dogs look amazing. And High Water Farms is going to be growing a is growing that dry farm this year, and those are going to look uh, amazing, and I'm sure be um, available at the urban market too. And um, those are massive size trichomes, really just, yeah, again, gorgeous, gorgeous plant and flower, beautiful long leaves, but also with that hybrid like thickness look to it. Um, and yeah, the flowers just 
fill in like crazy and they sparkle like jewels and the trichome size yeah just massive you catch some really big heads um god some other standouts to the um the you know i'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the gmo uh banana sfv dogs do this year which i was just calling gmob um those are gonna be you know hash monsters it's not really any way to get around it anything that that the dad goes on kind of turns into a hash monster and, and it's going on GMO. So <laughs> it's going to work out. So I have, uh, there's a few farms running that and it'll be really cool to see um, all the, uh, the percent yields that we're going to get from the plants this year. It'll be really exciting for the next year's uh, selections and um, yeah, th- those progress. Uh, and yeah, Indigo farms growing some of that Newcomb family farms growing some of that. Um, yeah. And, and uh uh, I think Bo's nose is probably going to wash some and uh, surprise, surprise. We'll wash that too. So excited to see those. Fuck, I could probably keep going. Um, <laughs> I love it. I don't know. Should I though? <laughs> which, which area do I want to dive into next? Though? Um, the P-Funk. Uh, P-Funk is pretty fun. Actually, um, this year, this is kind of interesting. Um so a friend, Ryan and Charlotte, with uh, they have a chocolate company called Aura Chocolate where they do probiotic chocolates. Um, but they're also uh, doing a uh, – they have, um, yeah, really, really nice chocolates. And they, they really uh, like sourcing the best quality um, products. And they work with all the like kind of regen farms and the Dragonfly Earth medicine pure farms and they've been really connected and engaged in that community and, and been great friends too. But um, they also had a relationship with uh, the studio where a lot of really cool songs were recorded. And uh, one of those, um, the plant and one of those was atomic dog. And I happen to have a atomic Kush crossed with black dog and atomic dog that moon made farms actually, or sorry, moon gazer farms, uh, and Mendo, uh, got from me years ago and continued on with. And, um, we ended up doing a, uh, having, they grew atomic dog last year that, uh, we went to a, actually meet with George Clinton and at, went to a parliament show and basically like, he was down to, to do the atomic dog. So there'll be like the George Clinton approved atomic dog from uh, Moongazer farms. It'll be pretty fun. Um, so I'll have to work more with that, but uh, also working on this P funk right now, which is this really bright purple, funky, incredible smelling um, variety. That was um, it was a, it was a sour bubble atomic um, that was put on skyscraper uh, or sorry, Skywalker OG. And I was, I called that skyscraper, uh, that combo. And that was put onto a, um, this, it was this Girl Scout A30 selection from 2011, um, that I had kept and yeah, ended up choosing a male from that and putting that onto the, um, that the skyscraper. And it came out super just crazy, funky and dark and amazing. And um, this year I just, I put the orange Valley dog on that. And I have that like right behind me here too. One of these, the larger one back there, but the, the stem rubs are just insane. Just uh, unbelievably like bright and fermented berry and, and citrus. And yeah, very excited about those too. And some of the prettiest leaves, just massive, gorgeous fan leaves. Um. Yeah, and then yeah, it's gonna be really fun 
really fun this year as each different thing starts to show. Because first I do the earlies. I do some depths too to get pollinated. And then I start moving on to like the the full season early varieties and then all the others. And I can't wait to start playing with all the cool stuff from Eras and as, as they're just starting to show sex right now. And I'm going to, I'm going to propagate some more of the, uh, the low lab uh, together isolated and just to, to, to make more to, to play with too and multiple others. Um, God, there's so many cool treasures that he has in there too. I'm excited to see what the Hunza do and uh, the blocks done, um, you know, some of the hash varieties, the Milana, Wailing Valley, Shilawathi, it's going to be really cool to see everything. Wow. That is, that's really exciting. That's so cool. And I think that's probably got to give people a pretty good range of options to select for. Oh God. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got, I went a little crazy with it. Uh, so nice. I, I, next year I'm going to do a few less and do larger population groups, but I just kind of wanted to see everything cause I'm so excited. But. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I love it. I love all the info. Um, so I think that brings us to our quickfire questions, which I've been excited to get to because I, I, I feel like these have just gotten better over time. <laughs> so my first question for you is, what's the most memorable cannabis you've ever smoked in your life? Or it could be, could be hash either. Um, well, actually I kind of mentioned a few of them already. Um, so the crackhead <laughs> that I mentioned back <laughs> when I was in high school, fuck, I still think of that smell. It had this like musty mango, a little bit of that cat piss like linger in the air. And it just like, and just the second you smelled it, you were already stimulated in the brain. Um, so super, yeah, memorable. It, yeah, I'll never forget that, that aroma and effect. Um, and yeah, it was just such a shared experience. Like yeah, all the friends were just like, oh my God, like... <laughs> That's just the perfect thing to, you know, for a show or, you know, going out and having fun. Um, also around that same time, that golden indica that I mentioned too, which actually became, I bred, it, it just ended up getting a purple variety, which I just called purple indica. And like that had this like thick, beautiful earth cushy, but with cotton candy. And I can just think of one of these gorilla grows right now and like, you know, pull the, bringing it down in a backpack and that cotton candy smell in the air when it was all fresh and gooey and um that smell will never escape me um oh, lovely what what's another uh the cherry lime dog from last year for sure the selections some of the best smells of my life um what else the the yeah tasting that puppy dog or sorry the puppy breath uh from from garden of greece was one of my favorite or, experiences of this year and honestly like the first time it hitting actually the athena sour kush um the first time adam washed the fresh frozen of that simply adam um that was uh yeah it was like feeling like you won the universe and got kicked in the face with like a lemon golden boot at the same time it was just like i don't know it was just so good just pepper and earth and butter and lemon and just insane potency and then the cleanliness in the, of his wash it was just like uh it just didn't even look possible how clean it was <laughs> like in the way it melted uh it's still like yeah surreal that it, it, because that was like 
it was still like that's bubble hash like that's possible you know it was at that time too so um that one still sticks out to me it was really cool is actually that was like really expensive at the emerald cup one year and um maybe the most expensive out of anything and it sold out so quickly and i remember one person like had wrote a, a um uh a, a post about how they went to that i was tagged in they went to the emerald cup on their birthday like drove nine hours to uh, on my birthday to go buy the most expensive hash I've ever seen or like the most expensive hash I've ever had. And then drove nine hours back home and then like tasted it. And he was like, best birthday ever. <laughs> like, And then two years later, he made another post where he pulled, he'd bought two and he pulled the other one out of the fridge. Like, and, uh, and it had cured. It just looked unreal. Just the golden jewel of uh, just perfect cure of, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was such a pure, um, <laughs> pure expression of what, what trichomes can be when you, you separate them perfectly. I mean, what Adam did with that was art um, and the way it was grown too. But uh, yeah, so it was really cool to see him like pulling that out two years later, like, like a fine bottle of wine. And, you know, that's how it is. It's like, and it was like, at that time, it was like, damn, I'd buy that back for me for like three times as much right now. Cause that's special, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. That all of those sound phenomenal. I guess on the other end of the spectrum, what's a strain in which everyone else was really into it, and so you were like looking forward to it, and then when you tried it, you were like, "This doesn't really do it for me." Hmm. You know, actually, I mean, I, I like the flavor profiles of most of the popular varieties and stuff. Um, you know, I like the candies, I like the gas. I mean, those those um, you know cookies and Skittles and OG. I, I like all those flavor profiles. They're great. Uh, uh, I mean, but it also really depends how it's grown. I mean, cookies can be so terrible, <laughs> like in cardboard and, <laughs> and dense and, and Skittles is a weak plant. You know, it's like, you know, it's not always super exciting to grow, but when you get it going and living soil really good, it looks good. I have it crossed with the black dog right now. Some Z dog that like actually right, right behind me. If you look in the thing and oh, it's yeah. so healthy and well-structured and beautiful. And so, I don't know, excited to see, um, yeah, I mean, what what happens from that? Because I love that flavor profile, but um, yeah, I think certain things could be better about the the plant. Um, but I also think a lot of these uh, clone varieties do get viruses over time. I'm, I'm pretty darn sure of that. The yeah. the hop latent virus is pretty prolific, and people like you know cut from one plant and then they cut to the next plant, and um, you know don't really have protocol. Like um, you know, even like you probably should be using bleach in between everything and um, you know, keeping your clones clean and knowing your source and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, so some of those things that, you know, that's where tissue culture makes sense, but it's expensive and it takes a lot of time. So you want to do that with those flavors that are really worth preserving. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, if a lot of people like a flavor, I probably like it too, as long as it was grown well. Um, so like if, if there was something like that, I'd probably blame it on the, the grower first, you know, if everyone liked the certain flavor, but you know, everyone has the things that they like more too. And it's like, um, you know, I'm not super, I'm not smoking hazes on a regular basis, but I, I appreciate their quality, um, a lot, you know, and I enjoy that. I, I love celebrating all the variety, but certain things you know, click with other people more. And, uh, and a lot of times, like what I find myself smoking a lot will be, um, the, um, 
well, I really like the complex and savory flavors that where it's like you're getting a meal um, and you get that with like some of the Athenas and the banana crosses and the black dog crosses sometimes. Um, but that like the Voltron and stuff too, where you get butter and dough and lemon and pepper and stuff. I like those a lot, but I want, I want gas and I want citrus and I want candy um, as well. Cause those are like really addictive through the day. You know, it's like, there's a certain like, you take a quick snapper and it like the way it hits your tongue and it just sits there. Um, you know, and the first time you hit, Oh, I remember, you know, first time hitting OG and being like, okay, yeah, I like that. Like might as well cross that in with a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Cause like, yeah. And, and also like if you're, you know, spliff smokers too, certain things um, stand above the tobacco and work really well. And also like, you know, become the flavor that you want to sing over something and to, to be on your tongue and um, and you keep reaching for it. And it's always interesting to see like what jar like just goes first, you know, and the, you know, it might not. Yeah. There's a certain, certain flavor profiles where it might be something is like, Oh, this is so good. And I like it so much, but you don't want it all the time. And other ones you're just like, I want to smoke this all day. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's all different. <laughs> Love so are there, well, how about you? Are there any that stood, stood out for you or you're like excited about trying something and then didn't like it? Yeah, good question. I think that, gosh, that I guess, I think that I've had some OGs that were so good that it made others seem not as impressive. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. so, yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, because I think the most memorable weed I've ever had in my life was just this random OG I got one time and... um yeah, I don't think I'll ever find out what cut it was. Sadly, it was just really special. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier too, I was just like we had a lot of cuts of OG, but they, so many of them are so similar. Uh, yeah. And I just honestly like I, it was the practices that really mattered because it's it's powdery mildew susceptible and like linking and so like the people really knew how to grow OG and make them work in the depths and like knew the timing and the trellis in like and you know what they needed for their health and stuff like it's just it's just night and day because it's a lot of people fuck up you know could fuck up og and you'd still get that gas like singing over and they could still you know sell it okay you know if it as long as it had that gas smell or flavor but it would be like dang dude that looks a little small and discolored and little pm and like actually i'd like to see a little pm on og because (laughs) <laughs> at least you know they didn't use microbutanol on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good one i like that i like that first of all if you had to go live on a desert island and you can only take three strains with you what three are you going to take hmm. oh man really good og cut <laughs> uh, <laughs> cherry lime dog and um it probably, yeah, uh, I would, I would take one of the either Canadog or Sapphire Sioux selections um, for like a nice two to one that has tons of flavor. Lovely, that's a nice little well-rounded pick there. So the next question, which I I really enjoy, is opposite end. Someone who you're not particularly fond of, you've got to drop them off on an island and leave them with three strains. What three strains are you going to leave them with? (laughs) (laughs) 
the same because they need to (laughs) yeah they need all the help they can get so (laughs) (laughs) i love that that's a very diplomatic answer i respect that maybe black dog too because it's good for yeah you know getting their mind in the right place yeah makes people cooler (laughs) (laughs) um so what's your prediction for the next big flavor to take the scene by storm cherry lime dog (laughs) for sure i love it confident Alrighty, so brings us to our last question, and I'm really interested to know what it's going to be for you. If you could go anywhere in around the world, any time in history, to presumably collect seeds or clones, where would you go, and what would you be trying to grab? Um, oh, any any time. Yeah. Shit, I go run around with with Deepaki Razin from just last year. <laughs> 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 Looks like he. A lot, of, a lot of cool pictures from his trip. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I agree. But you know, it, yeah, huh? It would be. I also would be interested to just be, a, you know, humble or Santa Cruz um, at the moment when, like, the first hybrids were kind of happening between, you know, something like a Mazar or Afghani with um, some of the stuff that was coming from. South America. Um, yeah, just to, it'd be interesting to, to be a fly on the wall those, those couple of years and, and see what actually, what did take place between uh, that beginning. Cause a lot happened from that moment. Yeah. It it's definitely. a combination of, of surfers and back to the landers and, you know, um, yeah, both people who, whether vets or peace activists avoiding the war or trying to get out of, you know, just trying to get back to the land and relate to growing their own food and connection with nature. And, and, uh, and then also the surfers traveling around and bringing stuff back and like that, where those kinds of things met. Uh, yeah. I think something really special came from that. So it would, it would be interesting to see those, those first, those first hybrids who did them and what happened. Yeah, I can certainly get behind that. So, just from you know being being California, you know Northern California based, growing up in Santa Cruz Hills, it's an interest to me. But I'm sure there's a lot of better answers too. <laughs> I would I would love to see so much. No, it's a brilliant one. And uh, so, with that in mind, I think that just about brings us to the end of things. Did you have any comments or shout outs you wanted to make at all? I feel like I made a good amount of them um again of course uh incredibly forever thankful for all the information and the genetics from Erasin. um always uh humboldt seed organization um yeah ryan has been a incredible part of this journey for me um and much love to eric too and just yeah um um yeah, uh, I, I mentioned before too, but shout out to Janine Coleman for all her work towards the Appalachian projects right now. Um, and just all the amazing regen farmers too. I mean, we've mentioned a bunch of them, but um, they all deserve it. I'd like to, um, you know, Sunroots Farms, I don't think got mentioned and, and their breeding and their, their cultivation work is incredible. The, uh, you know, the velvet herbs and the massive plants that they grow and the biodynamic uh, cultivation strategies and compost buildings that they uh, that they apply to their practices are amazing. Um, 
Mood and Gazer Farms, uh, Mood Made Farms, Bryceland Forest Farms, uh, you know, Flower Days, just, yeah, all, all amazing farms, um, doing really cool work. Uh, Radical Herbs, a biodynamic farm down in Kovlo as well. And, um, yeah, big shout out to, um, Mean Gene, Freeborn Selections for just always putting out tons of information and some of the tastiest varieties and just being a cool dude and a good friend and great person to just talk about cannabis with forever. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, yeah, big thanks to you. Cause I just, yeah, I love being able to intimately listen to um, a lot of these people that I respect. I, I get to gain so much information by just listening to them talk. So big appreciation for that no the pleasure has been all mine my friends so you know thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your knowledge and uh, especially you know your positivity around breeding around organics regenerative farming it's it's been really knowledgeable and insightful oh yeah one other shout out to to uh mama publishing um and they did the um organic grow book uh that ended up i, I did a lot of um um kind of consulting with them as far as like a lot of the living soil based stuff and the Hugo cultures, a lot of information, the Kashi and um, they made this amazing book out of it. They, and they ended up having chapters about me in it um, and different cultivation strategies. And there's one about black soldier fly composting uh, and, uh, but so they ended up adapting this, this incredible reference book about organic um, cultivation and they turned it into a comic book. And it's like a super cool comic book. It's got all these amazing little hilarious detailed characters like um, and it and it really dives into what's happening with living soil and the relationships between plant roots and the environment and um, and then goes into all these different practices like yeah, fermentation and biodynamics and natural farming and permaculture and hugel culture and um, but in, in really fun illustrations and in really uh, user you know really readable and fun ways that like kids in all ages enjoy bubble man actually just gave a big shout out to it uh earlier this week he was just like oh my god i love this thing this is going love reading this to my kid and it's like all this information super legit so it was really fun like pictures that i'd taken and things that i wrote were turned into comic books and they have me as like a little kid thinking about compost and like uh and fire and like the similarities and then like yeah it just has me on this whole like journey it's like pretty funny but um anyway yeah so that's like it just got um they did the uk version they did the french version they did um the version for spain and south america and then they just did the italian version um so yeah it's pretty cool to see all these different yeah these these concepts spreading around in a way that's like great for kids to read and um yeah just look forward to the next generation thinking about um just how important living soil is and our relationships with plants and community is yeah what a beautiful sentiment so thank you again for coming on the show and everyone be sure to go check the book out yeah uh yeah it's the organic grow book in comics Big, big, big thank you to Jesse again for taking the time to come on the show, share his incredible knowledge, and to talk all things organic and regenerative gardening. 
make sure you go check out and support our fantastic sponsors at Seeds here now. Best seed bank in the game. Got all the best breeders. If you're thinking they're a good breeder, they're probably on Seeds here now. Go hit them up. Check them out. Guarantee on germination and satisfaction. I don't know why you'd go anywhere else. Likewise, a huge, huge shout out to our friends at Coppet Biological. Beneficial bugs, beneficial predators, beneficial microbes, and even feeds to keep the good army alive, help fight off the bad guys. It's a no-brainer, guys. Go check them out. And finally, a big shout out to our buddies at the Patreon gang. These guys are the lifeblood of the show. We love you so much. Hope you guys enjoy listening to this one early. If you're interested in hearing the next episode before it comes out, go check out the Patreon, Patreon forward slash the podcast. And that just about does it for this one, gang. I'll see you for the next one. We'll see you.